This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of men. You are the Renaissance. It was natural for Egypt to be ruled by a patriarch, Pharaoh. But the king who arose in the days of Moses was an evil patriarch. He saw the sons of Israel as a threat to his reign, and he determined to do something about it. At first, he tried hard labor, but when this didn't crush the spirits and prevent them from being fruitful and multiplying, he commanded the Hebrew midwives. He said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. Pharaoh knew that young men, the young men of Israel, unlike the women, were a threat to his reign. Men are designed for conquest and rule, and their combined strength could be sufficient to break the chain of even a mighty dynasty like Egypt. So, in a move that comes natural to evil patriarchs, following their father, the devil, he tried to use the Hebrew women against the Hebrew men. But in one of the great ironic reversals of redemptive history, Shifra and Puah, the godly midwives, did not comply with the schemes of a corrupt ruler as Eve had done. Rather than being deceived into unwittingly abetting him, they resisted Pharaoh by deceiving him. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. That's kind of a, it does kind of sound like the CRC, doesn't it? Uh, They're vigorous, they give birth. There's babies popping out everywhere. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God. Now what's his gift for them? He established households for them. Households are a blessing from God, a reward. Thus Pharaoh was forced to find another way to murder the future patriarchs of Israel and commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Young men are always the target of an evil patriarchy. Because God has made them to rule, they are a threat to existing rule. Therefore, evil patriarchs always try to do one of three things. First, harness them. Why waste all that masculine energy? After all, it can be turned uh, towards the end of an evil patriarch. Why not use it? This is the first impulse of any patriarch, since he is the leader of men, regardless of how wicked he is. Most nations have done this to some degree through patriotism, military service. The 20th century is replete with examples from Hitler youth to Islamic radicalization of disaffected men in America. And Pharaoh tried to harness the sons of Israel 
in a slightly different way and thus combine the first strategy with the second. The second is pacify them. If the energy of men cannot be harnessed by evil patriarch, it often can be sapped by channeling it into pursuits that leave them impotent to rebel. This could be by putting them to work as slaves, but often by offering them some uh, like bread and circus, soma, right? Brave new world. Fruitless pursuits for them to escape into rather than doing the hard work of fighting. In our day, Satan has perfected this technique with pornography and to a lesser extent with video games. Men who are hooked up like junkies to the dopamine drip of virtual fornication and fake dominion are worthless for the task of being fruitful in real life and imposing genuine order on their worlds. I was at a men's event called the 21 Convention. It's non-Christian. Uh, a friend got me in there, and I was like, can I say whatever I want? And I said, yeah, so I did. Um, but uh, we had a Q&A, and a guy, very sincerely, he was brave. He came up to the mic. And I was talking about how terrible pornography was, and it was a sin, and to reject it, and just like ripping into pornography. And he's like, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, what am I supposed to do if I can't get a woman? And, um, and he was, I just asked him, I said, look, after you get done masturbating to pornography, do you feel like a man? <laughs> he said nothing, sat down. Right? They're trying to enslave you, young men. I know there are some young boys here who have stumbled onto things, even in homeschool families, maybe especially in homeschool families. But urge you, young men, if that's you, talk to your mom and dad. Your dad's for you. He's not against you. Your dad understands more than you think. Marx, following his father, the original liar, famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Not so. Entertainment is the opiate of the masses. And the more debauched, the better. Religion, true religion, is the one thing that sets the masses free and thus makes them impossibly dangerous to an evil patriarchy. When that happens, there's only one option left. And while they're trying to close our churches down and close our live streams down, you might think about this. Destroy them. Young men who cannot be harnessed or pacified must be crushed. They are too dangerous to the evil patriarchy to be allowed to live. This is why the most godless regimes are always the most murderous. Communism is well known for its ruthless hunt for dissidents in its own ranks, typically men. Pharaoh determined to kill every baby boy among the Hebrews, even though it would decimate his labor force. The serpent eats its own tail. That is why the serpent eventually loses. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. There is a spiritual hunger in men today like nothing I ever expected to see in my lifetime. Living in California for 20 years, I met plenty of seekers, psychonauts, and communities of the curious. But I rarely, if ever, felt or found anyone so dedicated to finding a spiritual path that they were willing to make sacrifices to achieve it. Fast forward to the past 12 months. And now I feel profoundly grateful to know many men for whom their faith is the bedrock of their lives, not just in theory, but in daily practice. And I know many more men, and of course women, who hear the call of faith and are standing at the door, summoning the courage to knock and enter. What's more, men developing their faith are dividing today. 
They see the poverty of both atheism and the New Age religion and seek something more traditional. That tends to lead them in one of two directions, Norse paganism or Christianity. Several weeks ago, I had Ben Howes from Oaks and Oaths on my podcast to discuss why paganism appeals to men. So I felt it only appropriate to invite a Christian on to make his case to the masculine. And who better than the confident, outspoken, even fiery husband and father of eight children, Pastor Michael Foster. Michael's been blazing a white streak through the internet lately, with a podcast of its own that's exploding in popularity as his message lands with men looking for a preacher who connects with their gut and not just their head or heart. You can hear it in his voice, clear, direct, unapologetic. He looks you in the eye, speaks his mind, and invites you into the arena with him, not to do battle with him, but against the ideas about Jesus Christ, the Bible, and Christians that have polluted these sacred waters for centuries, especially in Protestantism. As you might imagine, pastors like him are rare. But as you'll hear, Michael wasn't born or raised a godly man. God did, however, raise him up to make him part of the team, just in time for a very special moment in the history of the world. In the course of our two-hour conversation, we discussed Michael's extraordinary background and how he went from being an atheist and a near high school dropout to a Christian, a pastor, and a man seeking to make a decent church for other men. We discussed Jordan Peterson, his relationship to Christianity, and how 12 Rules for Life compares and contrasts with Bronze Age mindset. We talked about the meanings of the words justified, convicted, and propitiation, and how they illustrate God's lawful nature and Jesus' role in liberating us from the natural consequences of our actions. We discussed masculinity in film, including some of our favorite examples in cinema over the past several decades. And finally, we had a discussion of the best books about masculinity and Christianity, something I've been very much looking forward to. And you can find those books in the show notes. I've been excited about this episode for months. As I said before, I converted to Christianity and was baptized in September. And as yet, I haven't found anything in the religion that conflicts with authentic, integrated, and traditional masculinity. But as the new guy, I can't make the case as well as a man who's lived, breathed, and preached it. Get ready to hear what I think is testimony you've been waiting for, and know that where this man comes from, this is just the beginning. So it's with great pleasure I introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, Pastor Michael Foster. Hey, Michael, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Glad to be here, Will. I'm really excited to talk to you because I was baptized Christian back in, back in September. And I was very excited. It was a huge turning point in my life. And it was the culmination of a very long journey through the world of spirit to finally arrive quite unexpectedly at Christianity. And to have also have that come at the same time as my journey as a man into my masculinity and to find that there's no conflict between Christianity and masculinity because they harmonize quite well inside me. However, as I went into the larger world, I discovered there is quite a lot of conflict between Christianity and masculinity uh, in terms of uh, the Christian church and their approach to masculinity, and then also masculine men and their perceptions of Christianity. So I've been on a quest looking for men that are also knitting together masculinity and Christianity, and I can't find too many, but I knew about you and your work, and I have enormous respect for it. So I'm thrilled to get to talk to you about this, which was one of my favorite subjects right now. Uh, that's wonderful. That's everything I want to hear. That's very encouraging. 
Oh, well, I mean, I'm sure as you know, that talking about masculinity in general in the world can be considered quite controversial, but it seems that also talking about it in a, in a Christian context can almost be even more controversial, which is surprising because Jesus was a pretty masculine guy and he hung out with pretty masculine dudes. He was a carpenter, all of his, all of his apostles, they were all laborers and working men. John the Baptist was no weak dude. King David, as I recall, was a pretty masculine guy, but we have this image, or I should say there is this image and culture of Jesus being meek and mild and almost effeminate. And I don't, I mean, there is certainly that quality to an integrated man, but I don't think that reflects him accurately at all. And uh, who better to talk to about this than a pastor who's familiar with this firsthand? Yeah. Well, I think anyone, any man that's been around uh, knows that church is for women and children. Mm -hmm. That's the sense that they have. Uh, I think modern Christian men are faced with the impossible dilemma of laying aside their masculinity or laying aside their Christianity. And on paper, it's a false dilemma. When you look at scripture, um, God himself reveals himself in the masculine. That's his chosen pronouns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some chosen pronouns that liberals tend to, uh, and non-Christians don't respect. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously God's spirit, spirit doesn't have a body. And so there's a difference between um, the biological reality of male and, and, and masculinity. So God reveals himself in the masculinity, though he's not male. Um, so God is masculine. He's a father. Father isn't a image that we throw back onto God. Uh, scripture actually says that um, the fatherhood on earth is a uh, representation of God's fatherhood, right? God is the archetypical of father. He is a father. That's how he reveals himself. And um, so I think that Christianity um, as an effeminate religion, it just means that it's not a biblical Christianity mm -hmm. because Mary Daly is a feminist scholar, a, a religious femi feminist scholar. She said the Bible is hopelessly patriarchal and she is 100% right. Like scripture is patriarchal. Um, there's no way around it. The promises, the God's uh, covenant of redemption, or covenant of grace is called the promises given to the fathers, right? It's handed down through a series of patriarchs. Handed down. Um, you have the Noahic covenant. Um, you've got uh, after Noah. You've got the Abrahamic covenant. And you've got the Davidic covenant. You know, you've got all the the Mosaic covenant. Um, these are all men. These promises of the fathers are handed down. And then, how are we reconciled? Well, we're reconciled by Jesus, um, who's a king, not a queen. Right. He was a man, not a woman. Um, he's a son, not a daughter. And then Jesus uh, lives the perfect life, right? Keeps all the laws that we, we never kept, all the ones that we broke, um, and dies a perfect death that we should have died and reconciles us. And then how does scripture explain um, salvation? Well, namely, uh, it uses a lot of uh, images, like there's a legal sense that we're justified, that we change status from being um, – guilty to innocent and uh but also we we change from being an enemy of of god to being a son right so it's a whole idea of um of adoption we've been made uh sons and so we're no longer sons of the devil we're sons of god everything about christianity is very very masculine mm -hmm. oh absolutely 
And also, you know, you talk about the image of God, the father, the masculine, active, creative principle, the, the, the principle that goes from zero to one as contrasted with the feminine receptive principle. And these are not, you know, these are not in opposition, they're complementary. And to understand the act of creation itself, the act of creation is in itself masculine. You know, that first initial outward moving, outward moving step. And of course, God is genderless. God is, transcends all notions of gender and harmonizes and, and is the expression of all of them. But that initial step of creation is fundamentally masculine in nature. I would argue that God is a genderless. I would say that God does have a gender. Um, I would argue that God reveals himself in the masculine, but that's not a biological right. reality. That's and true. then I would say that uh, if you think about it, the creation actually is feminine. This is how we think about the creation. We really call it Mother Earth, or we talk about um, like a ship. We call it a she, or a car has a she. So there's just the things that we've uh, created um, are are always feminine. Yes, I, I would agree with that. I would absolutely agree with that. And and you know these notions of these these notions of gender that we're looking at, we're looking into the cosmic level from our our position as created beings. So, you know, we're trying to project ourselves upwards in a degree and we have to sort of step out of ourselves to be able to see things clearly, which is very difficult to do, especially in, in organizations <clears throat> where pastors and preachers, you know, they're, they're less good at translating the divine for us now and more good at kind of preaching propaganda that keeps them in a position of power in many cases, or that harmonizes with the current sociological trends. And that isn't really designed to help us to perceive truth or consider truth on our own. It's, you know, in many cases, people don't actually demand to know truth or have the, have the interest or facility to go and really chew on these larger concepts and figure out, well, what does this actually mean to me? And it's, it's a shame because I think it's in that process you know, you don't just show up to to church or whatever your faith is. You don't just show up to church like it's a drive through and you pick up your teaching and then you you head home. You know, these are these are principles, these are concepts, these are ideas that are meant to be struggled with and worked with and incorporated and, and digested and taken apart and put back together and say, how can I use this to water, you know, to the fields, the crops of my life? And uh, sadly. There's too much, so much is convenient, as I'm sure we could agree, we could agree today. So much of our lives is convenient and spirituality and religion has become convenient as well too. And it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be something that you really work with to understand your place in the world. And it's so hard. It seems like it's so difficult to find that, especially from a Christian perspective. Yeah, I think, well, I think Christianity became, to, or was identified with the feminine nature during the romantic period in particular, it goes all the way back to Bernard of Clairvaux and what was called bridal mysticism. Uh, but you really see the idea that women have a kind of a higher, uh, more spiritual, purer nature than men. And, and then Christianity starts to get defined as being something of passive, like, mm -hmm. recept you know, something that, uh, you only, you don't, uh, you don't initiate, you react. But when you look at the Christianity of the Bible, it's it's all about doing. It's not about just being hearers of the word, but doers of the word and actually uh, actually fighting for truth and arguing for truth. The conflict is very masculine. And in churches nowadays, uh, 
don't want conflict, uh, mostly because they cater to the women that make up their congregations, which in average Protestant congregation is uh, well above 60% of the people. And and, uh, women don't always deal with conflict the best way. The the example I always give people, um, and it's kind of a funny example, it's an antidote, but nonetheless, is that uh, we've had a lot of children. We've had eight. And uh, we... uh, had names for boys figured out pretty well. But when it came to girls, we didn't know if we'd ever, ever actually have a girl. Um, my family tends just to produce boys. We ended up going four boys, four girls. Wow. But um, so it was three boys first. And then we finally got a girl. And I remember trying to uh, select a name. I'm like, well, how about Ashley? How about this name or that name? And with each name, my wife's like, oh, I don't like that name. Well, what's wrong with that name? Well, there's this girl. Like when, when when did you have this person in your life? Oh, it was like back in fourth grade. And you're like, wait, fourth grade? Mm-hmm. You know, and there was this sense of just holding grudges or <laughs> where when women have conflict, they actually go in to destroy in a way that men don't. Um men uh, when we when we beat the snot out of each other, we literally can be friends after the fight. That's mm-hmm. happened to all of us in high school because part of it is setting up the hierarchy, undertaking, uh, getting a read of another person, learning how to respect them. When men fight, it's to establish um, a, a control uh, uh, order to things. When women fight, it's not about order. It's it's usually about, um, it just gets very destructive. And I say, I think so with churches that are full of women, they don't want conflict because things get out of control really quick. Plus women are given to nurturing. And so men that want to come and argue about truth and about doctrine and ask big, hard questions, they stir up trouble. And that's not welcome in a lot of churches. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, I mean, the classic example of women's approach to violence is the mama bear and her cubs. Just total, there's nothing short of total destruction. Like that's the, that's movie, right. the movie, The Revenant, right? So it's not a, it's not a judgment thing. Yeah. It's a, it's like the, the biological protective instinct when activated, you know, go, it goes to 11 as the, as the vernacular goes. And they need to be balanced out, right? Yeah. Like we need, we need, uh, we can't, we can't always be at war. We do need to create nurturing environments and all there and all that. Um, but we need both. And right now things are really out of whack. They are. They are. Well, so we, so we went racing on down the track to a bunch of theological, heavy, heavy uh, concepts, but I'd like to give uh, some of my listeners, not all of whom are Christians, but some of them a sense of your background and your own particular journey to become a pastor and, and what it is that you, what it is you do now and, and, uh, and, and the role that, that you play. Sure. Um, so I grew up in a non-Christian home, uh, both my mom and my dad, I think went to church on and off in little periods of their life. But growing up, I, I had no concept that I was a Christian. We certainly weren't churchgoers. Mm-hmm. And I do recall my mom teaching us to pray, but I thought it was like rubbing a, a genie's bottle, right? It was like, you had to get your position right, kneel at the end of your bed. You know, I, I didn't get any of it. And I thought, I actually Santa Claus. I was like, what's up? So Jesus was born and what's Santa Claus? Like everything seemed like a weird mixture of traditions. And my grandmother was Jewish and I lived with her for a time as a kid. And she would go 
to Lutheran church, but she went to a Lutheran church from time to time because that's where all the Germans from the old country were. So she immigrated here. So religion for her was, at least when I was a boy, was about culture. And so to me, I took religion just to be kind of myths, like helpful myths, whatever, helpful traditions, but ultimately not uh, true. Not true in a historical sense, at least. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, maybe I, I was like ahead of my time and thinking in Jungian archetypes like, you know, Jordan Peterson or whatever. Right. But um, but so I, I never took uh, Christianity very serious. And then as I uh, became a teenager, uh, I got really into Carl Sagan. I got really into just trying to understand where we came from. So I read a lot of uh, the atheists back then. This was in the 90s. So there wasn't the new atheists weren't around and there weren't like chat rooms. You could go. You had to get books. Mm-hmm. So um, then also uh, I, I met a lot of Christians at the time who were just terrible people. Yeah. You know, um, just I remember this one girl kept trying to witness to me, telling me that I should become a Christian. And she had slept with I don't know how many of my friends. And I remember telling her, I was like, look, I don't believe in Jesus, but if he was real, I I am convinced he would not want you vouching for him. Right. Like, <laughs> like, and so all the people I saw were uh, hypocrites. And I saw these folks on on uh, the TBN network, Trinity Broadcast Network, that were always begging for money. And I was like, man, these guys are clearly charlatans that are like taking people for their money. And I didn't understand it. But then by God's grace, I had a science teacher who was also a wrestling coach, a very masculine man, but a man of science. And so not this brooding hawk macho idiot, but a guy that could hold his own, but also read a book or two, mm-hmm. right? He had, had some uh, published papers and uh, news or science journals, and he was a Christian, and he really blew my mind. I just never thought a man of science could be a Christian. And we had good conversations and it made Christianity plausible for the first time because all the Christians I'd known didn't seem very thoughtful, didn't seem to live out their, uh, the ethics of their religion in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And, but, but I didn't just convert there. That's not how it worked or anything like that. Honestly, I, I struggled with it for probably about nine months to a year after that. And I heard someone preach the gospel straight up. Just Jesus lived the life that you you failed to live and died the death you should have died. And he rescues you not just from the devil and sin, but actually from the wrath of God and, and reconciles you into God's family. And now God doesn't frown on you and burning with anger, but he looks on you and smiles and loves you and you're brought into his family. Right. I heard it. And I can't I can't tell you what happened other than the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and I became a Christian. That was it. One day I was an atheist. The next day I wasn't. And uh, no one died. No one twisted my arm. Uh, There wasn't any super convincing proof or whatever, but God opened my eyes to see and it, it radically changed my life. Um, And I grew up uh, white trash, literally above a bar. Both my brothers have done time in jail. Um, I'm the only one that graduated high school and um, I had been arrested quite a few times uh, prior to my conversion. And uh, I was failing out of school. I had a GPA of 1.8. And then just, then everything changed. You know, I started teaching Bible studies or doing my homework. Um, met some other skateboarders who had been preaching the gospel. Back then, skateboarders were like actually tough. 
Mm-hmm. This was before Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, mm-hmm. before like all the preppy kids became skateboarders. Like back then, skateboarders, like, man, if you ran into them, it might, it might mean you have to fight. And so I, one night I came upon these skateboarders that asked me if I knew who Jesus was. And I said, yeah, I know who Jesus is. But I thought they were mocking me because I had a, back then in the 90s, it was popular for Christians to wear some sort of stupid Christian t-shirt. And I was wearing one that said, no Jesus. Well, mm-hmm. these guys said, do you know Jesus? And I thought they were mocking me. I was like, yeah, I do. Well, it turned out they were Christians. And I became really close friends with that group. And we uh, we did Bible studies together. We went out street preaching. I got kicked out of casinos. Um, we created a skateboard ministry where we would set up these, we created a, a mobile skate park and hundreds of kids would come to it and we'd preach the gospel to them. It was like crazy. I thought that was normal Christianity. I didn't know that wasn't normal at all because I, I didn't know what Christianity was. Um, and so I ended up teaching some of these Bible studies and, uh, and then the main teacher met a girl he liked and stopped coming to the Bible studies. Mm. And before I knew it, I was like the youth pastor and I didn't really sign up for this job. Mm-hmm. So I got into the ministry kind of by accident. Um, and I just kept teaching the Bible cause I love God's word and wanted people to know the God that I know. And, uh, and the first time I got kicked out of a church, I kid you not, uh, was because I came across first uh, Timothy chapter two, where it says that women can't be pastors. I mean, it very clearly says that. It's not really a matter of interpretation. It's black and white. Well, our church had a woman pastor and her daughter was in my youth group. And I, I taught that you couldn't have women pastors. And they're like, well, what about Pastor Trish? And I was like, well, I guess it's just Trish. <laughs> I guess he's not a pastor. Right? Like, what am I supposed to say? The Bible here says this. You know, and I was naive. I was like 17 or 18 at the time. And so I got removed um, early on for preaching biblical sexuality, but anyhow, uh, then, uh, I've been in and out of the ministry vocationally as a youth pastor, assistant pastor, associate pastor, and most recently came back to the ministry, deciding to plant a church uh, out on the east side of Cincinnati, um, Batavia, Ohio. It's in the middle of Claremont County. It's the county seat. And we're putting down roots there and just getting deeply involved in our community and, uh, I think we need good churches. I, I got really convicted um, about church planning after I saw what happened with COVID and also just the fact that Christian men can't find a decent church. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that if I was going to be criticizing the church, that I had to offer some level of a solution and get involved. And that was a big motivation for me to plant East River Church in Batavia and um so that's what I'm doing there and kind of been in the sexuality space, talking about it from one perspective or another for a long time, 15, 15 years, 18 years, something like that. And uh, it's kind of cool to see all the voices that are coming up right now and people like you with podcasts and my friend Eric Kahn and and even when you have organizations like 21, which is very much secular, but uh, there's a lot of guys that are part of that. Uh, myself, um, George Bruno, Ken Curry, um, 
other guys that are part of that who are, are Christians and unashamed about it. So it's neat to see Christian men kind of coming up and speaking more and more. So though things have been bad, uh, the, the sun is kind of breaking over the horizon. Well, I first, I first heard of you at the 21 convention. I mean, obviously you go to 21 convention and there's, you can't, there's three different rooms or at least two different rooms going. And so you can't be in two rooms at the same time. And, you know, so I, I don't remember who was talking at the same time as you, but I was in, I was in that talk. And then someone came to me and said, did you hear Michael Foster's talk? I'm like, no, I didn't. It's like, oh my God, it was amazing. He was talking about, he was talking about masculine Christianity. I'm like, oh, I can't believe I missed that one. You know, it's like, and I was so, but I was so happy to hear that kind of preaching come into 21 convention because, you know, it is a, it is primarily secular. I think Anthony will, you know, I think he himself says that he's an atheist and all that, but you know, uh, Elliot Hulse. Anthony would tell you that he's an objectivist. Oh, is that what he would say? He'll argue with you. You, He he prefers the tone objectivist or the term. Okay. I, that was there you go. But he's not a Christian at all. That's for certain. But he, he likes people that are all in. Yes. That are willing to go all in. That's what he respects. He respects people um, that actually believe what they say. And I think that's what we all are turned off by is a lot of these people that claim to be something. And then they're clearly not what they claim to be, you know? Yes. And there's, there's been a lot of that in Christianity over the years. Like you, I grew up, my, our stories are, have a lot of parallels. You know, I grew up and my family was Jewish. I was bar mitzvahed. And, and so I, but I didn't grow up with any amount of Jewish religion. It was just the cultural thing. Like we do Judaism because we're Jews and that's what we do. Not because there's any sort of like. Influence arguing the four pillars of Judaism. What, what are the, what, what were they again? Money, power, influence, and arguing. <laughs> that's 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 how that's my grandma's of Judaism anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because we um, didn't actually practice the religion either, but there's certainly a culture that you come out with. Yes, I think so. I think so. Money, power, influence, and arguing. Yeah, to that I would probably add like education to the extent that it doesn't I, fall under. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would say we probably well. Did we argue? There was definitely a lot of arguing, but there was also a lot of like simmering under the surface as well. And, you know, my, my grandfather, my, uh, my mother's, my mother's father, uh, we all, I live in Phoenix and um, my mother was from Phoenix and my dad is from New York. So we lived out here. And so we were closer to my mom's side of the family and my mother's father, my grandfather, David, he was kind of the patriarch of the family in a way. Not that I would have had the language at the time to understand what that was, but he passed away when I was around uh, 12 years old. And I remember when that happened, you know, the family that my, my mother's side of the family was primarily dominated uh, by women. My mother had two sisters and my grandmother was still alive. So that sort of things went from being, and my grandfather was in the war. He was a war hero. He was a, he was a spy behind enemy lines in Germany and had taken, wow. had been, had been shot. And yeah, he had lived a very heroic kind of story, but he was also very stoic is probably not the word. He was very, um, I, I was quite young when he passed away, but I remember him being very big and very imposing and having this very, very deep gravelly voice. I think one of his relatives was a, was an opera singer as well. Uh, I actually have a CD of him. So I had this huge, deep voice. And I just remember him being very angry all the time in that suppressed kind of trauma, you know, World War II veteran kind of way. Yep. Um, so when, but when he passed away, the, the, that side of the family became 
very heavily feminized and never, we never really experienced things quite the same way. And so there wasn't this kind of open arguing kind of conflict as you might expect with a, with a family of men arguing doctrine around the table. It was, everything was very like under the surface and not really talked about in this kind of way. And I'm putting all these pieces together now as I'm talking through it. Um, but you know, I grew up, I grew up in that environment and like you, I was exposed to on TV to like Benny Hinn or something like that, or all the, yep. the pastors on TV who are yeah, obviously like, send me money, send me money. And it's like, this is where, and so I, I grew up thinking what's going on here. And it wasn't until ironically, I went to Burning Man in 2015 and uh, some <coughs> friends directed me to a camp called Spirit Dream. And I went there and I had a three hour healing encounter, completely transformative. And I was looking around during the time and I was like, what are these people about? There's no psychedelic art. I'm not seeing any Buddhas or anything like that. And it was a Christian ministry group that had been going to Burning Man for 12 years and were, were doing ministry at Burning Man. And so I found my way into this camp and they were the most loving, open, kind, generous, supportive people I'd ever met, just radiant with life and acceptance and, and love, but a real intention to heal and, and show people the way, but without imposing their viewpoint, just showing God's love, showing the Father's love to a very broken community. And I was like, who are you people? And so they became my friends and they were the ones who who baptized me in September because they were the first ones to really show me a high integrity Christianity, which is not separate or divorced from life. It's like, no, we, you know, we have fun and we laugh and we go to things like Burning Man. Obviously they don't get high or anything like that. And they don't participate in the crazy stuff, but you know, God called them. They, I think the bat, I think the, the denomination, if you could call it, that is, um, is, um, Pentecostal Pentecostal. Okay. Yeah. Huh? The charismatic Pentecostals is the denomination. And so God called them to ministry at Burning Man. So they, that, they did that for 12 years. And so I went to go visit them that Christmas and celebrate Christmas with them in 2015. And, you know, they, they had prepared this feast and, you know, and they were drinking wine and laughing and listening to amazing Christian music. I'm like, this shouldn't, this shouldn't exist. This doesn't exist. And so that was it's my, beautiful. it's amazing. Yeah. And so I've been very blessed by them and, and I, I've been so grateful to get to see that side of Christianity and to, to know that it has integrity and so much integrity, but so much, I think of Christianity now as this incredibly powerful spiritual technology that many people are just, many pastors are not capable of handling. Like put that down before you hurt yourself. And so that's, that's how I usually explain it to people. That's a cool testimony, man. Praise God. Praise God. So I wanted to, I wanted to, there's like, there's a couple words that you use that not that, well, including me, non-Christians aren't necessarily familiar with. You use the term justified and convicted. And these are words that I hear repeated in sort of the Christian vernacular that someone listening may detect as, uh, as a specialized term. And I just wanted, I wondered if you could sort of explain what those terms mean to a non-Christian audience. Yeah. Well, they're not as technical as you think they are. If you ever watch Raylan Givens on Justified, um, the TV show, you ever watch that show? No. Oh, you're missing out, man. It's a good TV show. I'm not good first, at TV. First three seasons, really good. Uh, he is a um, U.S. Marshal. And he shoots somebody at the beginning, and he says he's allowed to do it because he's justified, because he's a justice, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is that, you, that you're legally innocent. That you have, that, so when someone's justified, that means they can stand before a court of law, and they can't bring anything against them. 
Mm-hmm. So the word justified in Christianity is God is a judge. God has, he's a lawgiver, right and wrong. He, and he expects people to live uh, in a lawful way. Just like anyone, like any king would, when you come into a kingdom, there's uh, the king who rules. There's uh, a way you show respect to the king and honor to the king and, and a way that you behave in his kingdom in a, in a good way. Well, we as uh, people have not done that. We have broken God's law the Holy King. And, and for that reason, uh, we are, we are guilty. And you know, Christianity, uh, uses a lot of legal terms at times. Like they'll say, Jesus is our advocate. So when we hear that, we think of it in a more, uh, kind of generic sense, but advocates just another, uh, it's like a lawyer. Someone argues your case, right? So when Jesus, um, d- died on the cross, uh, God's wrath, uh, was satisfied by this, um, by the sacrifice, it's called propitiation. There's a twenty dollar word for you. Mm-hmm. You spell that in Scrabble, you win the whole game. Um, but uh, uh, but he satisfies, and so now when God looks at me, I I am justified in His eyes. You know, I'm no longer I'm no longer guilty. So it's a change of status um, before God, and so all these wonderful things happen in the in the cross. A lot of things happen. The, the atonement were made were put out one with God. So a lot of times people think of God as this kind of sissy grandfather in the sky. Um, but God is a powerful, holy king. Um, and he loves and defends his children. And he also will, um, he will punish evildoers. Mm-hmm. And people think that's hellfire and brimstone, but uh, maybe it is. But let me ask you, like, if a cop, if a cop is on the road and he sees someone kick a baby in the head and he does nothing about it, is he a good cop or a bad cop? He's a bad cop. Or if he's standing outside of a bank, if we want to go with a less extreme version, and he sees robbers run off and he just lets them run off, he doesn't report, he doesn't do anything, is he a good cop or a bad cop? Well, he's a corrupt cop. If God is all-knowing and sees everything, and God has seen all the crimes that we've done, all the sins that we've done, and God does nothing about it, is he a holy God or an unholy God? He'd be an unholy God. So since God in his nature is holy, pure, perfect, um, there has to be, uh, those sins have to be dealt with. But that's why it's for God to remain just. But God loves mankind. He loves his people. And he made a way for us to be made right with him, to become justified through Jesus. And that's the idea of God as both the just and the justifier. And so that's that's core of the gospel. That's that's theology that works its way out in the book of Romans and Galatians in particular. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's just good. Like I'm innocent. I've done terrible things, but I've been made right through Jesus. God now looks at me and loves me, mm-hmm. and empowers me. We all need a father that loves us, mm-hmm. right? And that um, approves of us and cares for us, and but not one that winks at sin. It acts like it's not a big deal. Any dad that doesn't deal with his son's, um, any dad that doesn't deal with his son's sin, isn't a dad that loves him. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and that's and, convict, and convicted just means that you sense it's that sense of like, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I've been convicted. You've been shown your way is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think these are experiences that people can can relate to having. You know, for sure, Absolutely. especially the one of being of being convicted. It's one that I hear Christians use, and in, in particular, 
fairly often. And I think the evident, the meaning of it is evident from the context, but just to sort of tease out some of the themes like, Oh, yep. No, I gotta, I gotta do that. Like, Oh yeah, I gotta start a podcast. I'm, I am convicted. And that's a pretty powerful feeling when you kind of surrender to that. And, and I love what you say about, um, about the, the father and this, this notion of sin, people have a, a really complex, probably not good notion of this idea of sin, probably because they've seen really terrible people, you know, do, you know, doing terrible things and talking about sin and pointing the finger and, and <clears throat> talking about fire and brimstone, and you're going to go to hell. And it's like, well, who are you to be saying this? And who are you to be accusing me? Like, look at you, like, look at your own skeletons in the closet. Yep. And so people will naturally resist this word because it's, it's a very powerful world that's word that's been wielded by many very corrupt people. And so they don't want to actually look at their lives and acknowledge like, yeah, no, I, I, I have sinned. And that is the precise word to describe it. In addition to the amplification of the virtue of sin, essentially in the culture. Yeah. Amen. I agree. I think it's, it's hard to be humble and to be humble. Isn't to, uh, appreciate yourself or, or, or deprecate yourself or treat you like you're something that you're not, but it's to look at yourself for who you really are. And that is central to taking responsibility for yourself. And I think I am a sinner. I, I have lied. I have stolen. I have lusted. I have, I have not been the best dad, you know, at mm-hmm. times. I have a lot of failures. And how, when did I become a sinner? All my life, man. Like, we don't have to teach kids to do good. Or teach, we don't have to teach them to do bad. We have to teach them to do good. There's, there, there's a bentness with children that comes out of sinfulness. And it's hard for people to understand, but it's exactly what Scripture teaches. And as a parent of eight children, not, not some, some Twitter guru with a two-year-old and a seven-year-old telling you everything you need to know about parents, right? Like, that's crazy. Like, I don't even like to talk about parenting too much because all I have is a 14-year-old. But I especially think it's uh, obnoxious when someone's writing ebooks and they have like two kids and they haven't done anything yet. Wait till they, wait till you have a couple kids and they start going through different phases of life. But um, I, I, it's they are sinners and they need they need Jesus like I need Jesus. In one way, as a father, you testify the truthness of the gospel is not acting like you're perfect, but when you sin against your wife or sin against your children or sin in front of your children, you repent to God in front of them, or if you sin against them, I've told my sons, I have sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? Mm-hmm. I need gos- I need the gospel too. And so a lot of people see these folks that talk this big game about repentance and believe in the gospel, but then they never, they themselves never repent and they never ask for forgiveness in their own relationships. Mm-hmm. And so these kids, they, they actually know the reality of their parents' life that they're hypocrites. The word hypocrite is comes from the theater term where you would hold up half of a mask, right? When you do theater in Greek, Greek culture, and you would turn into this character, you take the mask down, you're a different character, mm-hmm. right? So it's two faces, it's hypocrite, two different people. Mm. And that is why a lot of kids, I think, um, especially pastor's kids, uh, they see their dad week after week, preach from the pulpit. And so as a pastor, it's very important that I am not a fraud in the pulpit, not because of my congregants, to some degree, whatever, right? But my children, right? If I lose my children, then I've really failed as a pastor because who are who's more important to pastoring than my own children? Mm-hmm. And they know who I am at home. 
They've heard me scream. They've seen me lose my temper. They know my reality. And I think it's very important that, um, that we all are humbled by our sin and repent of it and repent of it often. And there's grace. Grace is what? Unmerited favor. Mercy is what? Not getting what you do deserve. Mm-hmm. And God pours out grace and mercy on the humble. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He lifts them up. So uh, the moment that we're willing to be real about our sins and our flaws and our willful law-breaking is the moment that we start to be people that one can come to God and God will lift up, but two, that other people can trust. Mm-hmm. Can't trust someone that's ever wrong, man. Can't do it. Right. Exactly. Well, because everyone's wrong. It's just whether they're willing to admit it or not. And then you definitely right. can't trust them. But you you bring up something that's really, I think, is so little talked about. And I think this is starting to change is in the communities that I'm a part of, not just the 21 convention, but also on Instagram, there are lots of men that are doing a lot of reflections on masculinity that are really digging in philosophically, spiritually, uh, in terms of all these cultures to the world. And so many men are landing on Christianity. It's actually, and women too, it's incredibly inspiring to see. They're finding that, yeah, there's a real wave coming. It's very special to see. And the thing that's really resonating with them is this notion that, uh, you know, we started out by talking about patriarchy. And the problem with this word patriarchy is that it has this connotation of the way that it's used in the vernacular of evil. Like patriarchy is evil. These are the, essentially that's what you're saying. Is it like if you if you so if you believe in patriarchy, you're evil. Well, if you take that out and you look at patriarchy as meaning a system that's led by the father. Yes, absolutely. And there's nothing inherently evil about that. But where it can tend to go wrong very quickly is, yes, we say that the the wife should be subservient to the husband and the children should be subservient to the wife, if that's, if that's the appropriate word to use. But the thing is, where it begins to go wrong is, who is the husband subservient to? The husband is subservient to God. And that is how balance is achieved. If the husband doesn't feel like he needs to be subservient to anyone, then he become, then he's just serving himself. And then he exploits others on behalf of himself. And then you get the twisted uh, version of the archetype, let's say. But as soon as the man humbles himself before God and follows God's law and serves in a, with a spirit of humility and contrition, then he can be a proper leader. But only God gives him that. Not another man, not a pastor, not a preacher necessarily, but it's your individual connection with God that guides you in right in right behavior and, and right belief and right behavior. And then you can effectively lead your family. And that's how balance is achieved. And the men are discovering that for themselves. And that is so wonderful to see because that writes so many wrongs and creates a space for women to feel safe and feel held and to respect the men and for the men to respect them. And to also, like you say, recognize that, I'm going to screw up, I'm, but I'm going to make it right with you and I'm going to make it right with God and I'm going to grow. And that's all we can hope for. That is literally all, that's the best we can hope for. And that's a wonderful thing to hope for regardless. So one way to think about, and this will get, if you have some red pill listeners, I can trigger a few right now. Um, <laughs> but one way to think about, you basically got three attributes or three things that you need to bring together for healthy patriarchy. So I, I believe there is such a thing as the evil patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees, your father is the devil, right? What's yeah. more, what's an evil, more evil patriarch than the devil. Um, and I think evil patriarchy is when uh, you have uh, authority um, to, that doesn't meet any responsibility. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Um, And then I think another form of what we see more commonly in our society, though, is men are given responsibility by the culture, by the churches, in marriage, whatever, but no authority to do it. So they're like these slaves. Hmm. So like they're, they're the servant leader to their wife. Which really just means they do whatever the wife tells them to do. Um, and uh, yeah, you'll hear this all the time on here. But really, um, what you've got going on in our culture is that uh, in a, a evil patriarchy, you have a man with all the authority who maybe has ability, but is not using the ability to fulfill his male responsibilities. In a feminine imperative sort of structure or a feministic cultural structure, you have men who have all the responsibility, uh, maybe the ability, but certainly no authority to get it done. Mm-hmm. And in a healthy structure, what you have, a biblical patriarchy, is you have men who have they accept that they have authority, they use it to fulfill male responsibilities, and then they do it with ability, with skill and wisdom. I'll find with a lot of people who discover patriarchy, they think they can just command women into uh, following them. Mm -hmm. I'll have guys always call me up, what do I do when my wife won't submit to me, when she won't follow me, you know, or won't submit to my commands? I'm like, well, like, tell me, Tell me a little bit more about your relationship. What I'll find is a lot of them didn't take time to develop masculine ability, mm-hmm. right? And actually learn how to be a good leader. Like, are you communicating properly? Are these fair expectations? Have you given her the resources that you need? And a lot of these guys haven't because what's what's happened is they, they weren't raised in a home where they had a good masculine example on how to deal with conflict and how to inspire and how to train or whatever. So they, they don't really have those abilities. And, uh, but they know that as a man, they're supposed to take, take command and be authoritative. But when you don't have a real ability or a care for other people, you become authoritarian, which isn't good. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole reason the manosphere exists in, in, in a positive sense is that there are men that want to develop those abilities. Sometimes there's guys though, that just want to be kind of blowhards, pushy, patriarchal types that that's not good. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm happy to see the world open it up. It's really strange because even take your story. I mean, Bernie man, that's ridiculous, right? Right. Becoming a Christian and Bernie man is hilarious, but I, I know a lot of people who've become Christians through listening to Jordan Peterson, who I would say is not a biblical Christian, or at least I don't know where he's at after coming back in the public life right. where he's been for the last year, but leading up to that in the writings I've read, I would say this is a guy deeply influenced by Christianity and not antagonistic at it. Mm-hmm. But by a most basic definition of Christianity, he would not be a biblical Christian. Like, I don't know that he really believes in your Trinity. I don't know if he really believes Jesus is the Son of God as a historical person. Uh, it seems to me like he's using Jungian archetypes. So um, I can't tell. If he is a Christian, praise the Lord. I'm happy for it. But mm-hmm. based on his writings, nonetheless, it's fascinating to me how many people I've met who have become Christians through his writings. Yep. Like he set them on a path and I'm watching right now people come to Christianity from the weirdest, most diverse places. Mm-hmm. It is very encouraging, but it also means like a guy like me, like I have to read up because I don't understand all these backgrounds, you know, like I don't understand some of these communities. 
that they're becoming Christians in are very strange, like the Instagram health community. That's kind of a weird place to become a Christian. That's right. And, and you know, and they kind of bring some of that, you know, hustle attitude towards it that's good, but also has some bad tendencies. So it's, it's an exciting time to be a pastor, but you, because all these molds are being broken and it requires for you to really apply principles to each situation wisely. So uh, it's kind of a diversion, but nonetheless, no, uh, it's neat stuff. Yeah. Praise God. That's, that's the thing that I love the most is to talk to all these different communities and to have them all seeming to be sympathetic to adopting, exploring, converting to Christianity and to have that be such a, such a surprise did not see that coming. And just as for Jordan Peterson, I did start watching his Bible series, uh, the talks on YouTube and he starts out that series. uh, You're right. He does think approach things in an archetypal way, but he says at the very start of that series, so to to whatever degree, this is true. Theologically, this is not going to be part of that discussion. I'm going to present it in an archetypal way. And we're going to table the theological discussion just to sort of say, I'm not making any claim either way, but so we can explore it in a way that's relatable to a modern audience, independent of the theological aspects of it. I want to introduce this material to it and we can approach the theology separately. So I really appreciated that he took time to, to call that out. And I've also experienced a lot of his works. And I, I think he's in a very interesting place where he it wouldn't be opposed to, well, well, I don't know where he's at right now, but as you said, but where he, at the time, he wouldn't have been opposed to it. But I think as a, as a public intellectual, proclaiming you're a Christian is an immediate way to be shown the door, unfortunately. You know, very, very few I don't know of any really that can, that are actually permitted to be, you know, high integrity male public intellectuals and be avowedly Christian. I mean, the, the the handful, Peter Hitchens would be one, which is ironically Christopher Hitchens brothers, brother. So here's what I think happened with Jordan Peterson. I think Jordan Peterson was shocked by the number of Christians that rallied around his stuff. I don't think he foresaw it. Um, and then I think he doesn't want to alienate them because he cares for them. And I think it's caused a real crisis of conscience for him. I think he's working through it. I think he's trying to figure out. If you watched him talk to, uh, what's the new atheist guy? Dawkins. Oh, man. No, the one that's not as annoying as Dawkins. Um, Harris. Yeah, Sam Harris. Uh, Sam Harris destroyed Jordan Peterson on that topic. Like, I don't even like Sam Harris. I'm not saying it because I side with him. He just did. Jordan Peterson dodged the question, moved around, uh, moved around it. And Sam Harris was going after him pretty hard. Um, And I think Jordan Peterson is like a lot of people right now. Like, they're, they're, they're just trying to make a decision, figure out. It would cost him a lot to come out, though. Um, Jesus did die on the cross and take the world's sin, though. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if, if he lays his life down for us, we got to be willing to go for it. That's why when I went to the 21 convention, I, 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 I preached the gospel right away. Like mm-hmm. it, I brought up the necessity of faith in Jesus at any, at all of my speeches. I'll do it every time I'm there. Um, just because I try not to do it to be annoying. Like there's a way, like I was invited there. I know my context and I'm trying to bring content that's uh, applicable to everybody. But as Christians, we have to decide to be Christians publicly now more than ever, mm-hmm. you know, I think, um, and I think Jordan Peterson's trying to figure it out. So I don't know where he's at. I think he's in play. Cause I know there's people like Vox day that think he's just a big liar. Oh. And so 
It's a whole scam. And then I know other people that think, oh, he's clearly a Christian. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think he's a guy that he had a he, he had a spine and he stood up to the Canadian government, stood up to the academy, and then wrote this book on how to be a man. And then Christians were like, oh, my goodness, someone actually writing a practical book that helps me. And they all just like fell in love with Jordan Peterson. And um, it had been his big supporters, his big advocate. And I think it's led him to a place where like he's trying to decide where he's at, you know, and there I, I wonder what will come of this new version of him that's coming out. You know, I'm hopeful. I pray for him from time to time. You know? Oh, absolutely. Well, I read his book. I read 12 Rules for Life in December. And by that point, he had just sort of come back into the public eye after about a year or two absence. Yeah. And I remember when I discovered him in 2017 and how much of his stuff I was just devouring all the videos I could find of him on YouTube, um, except for obviously the maps of meaning and the Bible lectures that I hadn't, I haven't really engaged with those fully yet because they require so much concentrated attention, but he was willing to stand up against critical theory and postmodernism and cultural Marxism and really, really punch him in the nose, like over and over and over again, like this is dumb, you're wrong and speak a truth that a lot of people saw coming that they were afraid to speak up for. And he continued winning those battles. And I, I'm aware of Vox Day's dislike for him. And, you know, I, I just, I, I found that to be, when, you know, when he did end up going to, when Jordan Peterson ended up going to that, I guess, Russian sanitarium or mental hospital to sort of dry yeah, out, yeah. the way that they were just dancing on his grave. And it was just, it was really, really distasteful. And I think anyone who celebrates the, the fall of a man, Jordan Peterson, who had done so much good for so many men, I think that really shows some sort of weakness of some sort of weakness of character, because you may, you may believe that he's a scam, which, I mean, I, I don't know, I think millions of men being lifted up by his writings, you know, I don't know that that bears it out, but you know, you don't kind of dan dance on the dude's grave, so to speak. And so I, I really didn't like that, maybe very uncomfortable. But so then in December, I read 12 rules for life. And it was just the most wonderful feeling, like getting to hang out with Jordan Peterson again. Like he's just there in my room as I'm reading because he's so he's so vivid in his writing. And he writes in this and he as he speaks in this very distinctive, discursive kind of way. And his thoughts are so unique and very much his own. And as I'm engaging deeply with this book, I'm like, I'm not detecting deception from this man. You know, if he's if he's able to behind the scenes be architecting this wonderful persona in this evil genius kind of way to lead men down the wrong path. He's a level of genius far beyond what he's already demonstrating right now. You know, there's, I didn't detect cracks in the armor or falsity, you know, but his own unique, like, I don't know the answer. And I'm, a, a, but also because he's an intellectual, I'm afraid to commit to faith. And that's where it kind of comes from. It's like, it's really easy to land in Jungian archetypes and psychological studies and, and, uh, you know, sociology and your practice as a, as a, I guess he was a clinical psychologist. It's, it's a completely different thing to take that step onto the invisible bridge, like that, that classic scene from Indiana Jones and in the last crusade, you know, to put your leg out and put your foot down on the invisible bridge of faith and to say, no, this is the story of the world. And I commit to it. That's a thing. That is a thing. And I can understand that for a man with that is as power with a powerful mind as his as he has, and as much good as he can do by remaining in the public eye, that taking that step publicly in the way that I think many of us would want him to do would limit his ability to have a positive impact or at the time would have. Now I don't really know for sure. I'll have to catch up on his stuff, but I think he was held back by his own brilliance. 
and also probably by the the cost of really committing to a perspective in that way. It's hard to become the face of a movement. You yeah. know what I mean? So I, uh, I struggled with that book. Uh, I couldn't finish it. Um, and I, it was funny cause I was reading that book and uh bronze age mindset at the same time. <laughs> wow. And, and I ended up liking bronze age mindset a lot more. Um, but I think, what it was with Bronze Age mindset, it's just that it was clearly pagan and antagonistic towards Christianity. So there, for me, it was easy to read that book because mm-hmm. like, I know what I'm dealing with. Like this guy, we, we have a different perspective. There's, he's not really being subversive towards Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. There's like nothing underneath the hood. Um, and I didn't agree with a lot of his ideas, obviously. It was right. an absolutely fascinating book. Um, but, um, he is hiding behind a pseudonym. I mean, he's been doxxed. People know who he is now. But, oh, really? Uh, yeah, if you really want to know. Um, but um, but uh, with Jordan Peterson, he is. He does have to stand up behind his own name, right? People know who he is, and they can they can see the reality of his life. And uh, and I think that you have to give credit where credit's due. And anytime someone's willing to live out. Um, be public about those things. Uh, so I, you gotta, I give credit there. Even when I disagree with things, I think at least the man, uh, has put himself, he's, he's, he didn't plan on being on the, uh, pedestal that was on, Mm -hmm. but he did his best to, uh, accept it. And I think it, it cost him a lot, obviously. Oh yeah. I mean, it just, well, he kept going on TV and in debates and he kept winning these debates or at least holding his own and, you know, to go through that process and, uh, you know, to constantly, to constantly, you know, be attacked and to have them coming after him and to hold his own and to keep his composure and, and make his points and to really stand up against the onslaught, you know, he kept the stakes kept getting higher and higher and higher. And I can totally understand a, a man who is, you know, probably, trait neurotic in some way, as he might say, certainly with a powerful mind like that, he's seeing and feeling everything. And, you know, he, if you look at the time when, when he, he, he lost a bunch of weight, uh, before he became famous, he used to be quite a bit overweight and a bit rounder. And you can actually look into this man's face and see that it's a very different man who doesn't have as much a stable grasp on himself. It struggles with depression and all this. And so he lost a bunch of weight, but you don't ever actually like leave the depression aspect behind. And so you know, life turned up the pressure on him probably as high as it can be turned up on any man. And then his wife got sick and, and who knows what kind of vipers are surrounding, are surrounding him. And, you know, he ended up taking an RV across the country with his family for his 12 rules for life tour. And, you know, I can absolutely sympathize with the man that that would get to anybody. And I just think that was why I found what, you know, the people dancing on his grave was so distasteful. It's like, you don't recognize what this guy has been through. Like he's been on a bigger stage than you can imagine. Like, is there a bit of jealousy in there maybe, you know? So I'm utterly sympathetic to him. Now I'm curious, uh, you know, I want to dig in a little bit to bronze age mindset because I just, I, I host a, uh, a book club and we finished reading that a couple of weeks ago. And uh, you know, this is a book that, not every man in the manosphere or the renaissance of men, as I like to call it, has necessarily picked up. But I think at this point, probably everyone's heard of it. And I, I w- I'm surprised that you were reading these two books at the same time. So I'm sort of curious to get more of your impressions. 
I try to read all the the big books in the space. Um, whether it's what's the Superior Man? Do you read that one? David Data, yes, a couple hard, times. Yeah, that was a hard one for me to finish as well. I bet. Um, but uh, yeah, I like Bronze Age mindset. I think he he gets a lot. I think probably the best concept in that book. I think space owning space. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty important concept. The idea of a pirate to that, that sort of attitude. Um, what I think I like about it most is the idea of energy. You'd pick that up in Superior Man. But there is like a masculine energy. I don't want to like, not like in a new age, like vibration, whatever stuff. But I mean t- that men are supposed to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to want to conquer and take things. Like testosterone makes us that way. That's not a product of the fall that happened way back in Genesis. That's not a product of sin. That's a product of design. Mm-hmm. God's the one that gave that to us. And what I I don't like what I see in the church and I and I see um well I'll give you an example. My son in karate um I had to push him hard to let his hands go. There's this kid that would bully him in a karate match. And it wasn't, it was like sparring. I'm like, he kept breaking the rules. I was like, son, just kick him in his face or kick him in his balls. Like mm-hmm. knock the air out of him. Like show him that like, he can't break the rules with you. Don't be a jerk, but you know, let go. But uh, he had to, Hudson had to learn to let his hands go. And you see this with men that, that, and, and so in boxing is one of my favorite, I, I grew up, I love boxing. And I remember this one fighter, he was awesome. He, uh, he was, he had so much potential, but when he was under pressure, he would just, he'd go into a shell and keep his hands up by his head. And he wouldn't let his hands go. He didn't know how to like have that killer instinct and go for it and just have that, that uh, almost primal. So what I like is the sense of, that feeling you get, that warrior mindset, that going after it hard, um, that letting your hands go, like unleashing the, your masculine energy. That's what courses through Bronze Age uh, mindset. I like that better than the feeling I got from 12 Rules with Jordan Peterson, mm. like where the world is this horrible terrible place he always uses he uses these adjectives over and over again and you get the sense of this like the world's something that you're scared of but you got to come over overcome your fear and go out there and fight your way through your fear and that's that's helpful to a lot of people and i'm not saying that there's not some level of valuable counsel there but i like the bronze age mindset where it's like the world was made to be conquered. Go conquer it, right? You're made to conquer it. This is like part of your masculine identity. That actually uh, resonates with me as a man and as a Christian because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 or so, God gives uh, man what's called the creation mandate or sometimes called the cultural mandate. And he says that we are to um, rule, reign, and subdue the earth. Mm-hmm. And, and I like this idea of like looking at at challenges as something you want, you know, I want a good fight. I want to go get it. I, I'm not, I'm not scared to be a man. Actually, I need to be told it's okay to be a man. And, um, and so that's, I think there's, I was reading those two books against each other at the same time. Like I didn't do it on purpose. It's just right. whatever. So I ended up liking bronze age mindset actually more 
But I think a lot of the practical stuff in Jordan Peterson's books are things that I had already worked through personally, you know, previously. And mm-hmm. maybe if I hadn't, um, you know, would have had the same effect on me that it had on a lot of guys, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. A lot of people make that book, you know, sort of this cornerstone of their personality, 12 rules for life and the way that people sometimes do that with Atlas Shrugged and, you know, or the communist manifesto or whatever, you know, as they find. I mean, if it helps you turn a corner, like yeah. the whole idea of making your bed or taking dominion, like on the closest things like that's, that's huge. And this having a starting place, a lot of guys, they're like cars. You just gotta, you know, you gotta jumpstart them. You know, and yeah. let them go. That book jump started you in your journey. Praise God, I'm happy for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Like, but it, it's not the end of the journey. None of these books are. You know, don't no. don't pick up Twelve Rules of Life and like, okay, cool. I found my I found my Bible. You know, or then you know, Bronze Age Mindset, or or even Way of the Spirit Man, or any of the books. Well, even you know, with Bronze Age Mindset, it is really a book about mindset. Like, you don't really walk away with lots of practical <laughs> takeaways in that book. Right. Like what exactly am I supposed to do? You know, like how do we, you know, that's what I kept, I, I, I like to always say, so what, when I'm reading a book, so what, so what, like, mm-hmm. so what, what, what do I do now? And as I read bronze age mindset, you know, I wanted to eat meat, have sex with my wife and conquer something. But, but outside of that, like right. <laughs> what else am I supposed to do? You know? Right. Right. Of course. Bodybuild more, I guess. Well, there is that. I mean, I, I think what I walked away, what I walked away from that book and, and I misjudged the book the first time I read it. I really took issue with where he landed at the end of the book about needing to uh, reclaim the, I guess you might say the more corrupt spaces. It's like, okay, that's a strange place to land. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have chosen to conclude my book saying, well, the first place we need to start is by going into the brothels and the prostitution houses and the red light districts. Like, oh, that's a strange place to land. I really misjudged that. And, but when I read it a second time, uh, I, I, I encountered that part and I understood it more deeply as, no, you, you, you go into these spaces and you uh, begin to own the blackmail that can use, be used to twist the, pe- the really corrupt people who are running things and twist them to do the things that we want to do. It's like, okay, that's a, that's a more realistic portrayal, I think, of how the world works. But uh, So I did misjudge him the first time, but I did like that he said it will require a warrior spirit and a multi-generational project to reclaim our own space uh, for ourselves. And, and I I walked away thinking like, wow, I'm not ready. I'm not personally ready to take on that mantle. It will take a far stronger man than me to navigate that world and, and uh, to keep his soul. But I appreciate that he did propose this very, um, the hardest thing that you can possibly do, I guess, uh, depending on what kind of man you are, I suppose. Yeah. Now, what are some of the other books that you've read in the space? Well, I'm actually, actually, no, what I, here's what I want to know. What do you think of John Eldridge Wild at Heart? I think, uh, so I read that... I read that back in like 2001 or 2002, um, right around then. And I think his solutions are wrong, but his, the problem he identified was pretty right on, right? Like he is, he, he was capturing what a lot of men were feeling in the church at the time, like, uh, feeling ashamed to be a man, not being welcome into the world of man. Um, all that sort of stuff was good. And it was, uh, I read it and I thought, okay, this is helpful. Like, I'm not crazy. But I didn't, even back then, as a, someone in his early 20s, I was like, eh, you know, this guy quotes Gladiator like it's the Bible. And mm-hmm. I think he has a deep, I think he's like a lot of boomers or a deeply white knight 
that really define their masculinity by their ability to save a damsel in distress. Mm. And that's a big part of his thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that can lead to putting women up in a pedestal. And that's not where women want to be. Women want you on the pedestal. Um, like one way to think about it is God is the sun, you are the earth, and the woman is the moon. So we're, as a man and a woman, we're both equally orbiting around God. He has the greater gravitas, the gravity, the pull. But a woman wants a man to have the greater gravity in their relationship and hold her in his orbit. And a lot of times we got it backwards where the woman has more and the guy's orbiting around her and that's an unhealthy relationship for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. So I think there's just a tendency in a boomer's, it's generational for some reason, but you see this in a lot of the Christian writings coming from boomers on sexuality, is that the a man seem, tends to be defined by his ability to save a woman and not by his ability to obey God and live out a godly mission mm -hmm of which a woman is part of. Mm -hmm. That's great. I mean, because I think I was particularly moved by a lot of the mythopoetic men's movement guys. So like the Robert Bly and, uh, and Sam Keen, that's kind of the, that's was my doorway mm -hmm. into Iron John and all that. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh King warrior, magician lover. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of these guys, they came out of a culture that was, you know, with where feminism was just beginning to blossom into the ascendancy and where at the time it may have also even had some, some positive things to say for men who were discerning to say, okay, there's something here, you know, let's, let's recontextualize masculinity in this, in this framework. And it was, it was, you know, timely in a way. And I can see how looking back on it now, how John Eldridge uh, boomers in particular, cause that was their generation, you know, the, the 1960s generation, all that, you know, where feminism really starts, uh, you know, coming aggressively into the culture where they would grow up with that idea of always having to frame things through, well, what's the impact on women? What's the impact yeah. on women? And, you know, that may have been very relevant for a time, but I think now that's gone way, way, way too far. And it's become, rather than being empowering for men to recognize, as you say, a sense of accountability and responsibility, now it's become actively disempowering and, and, and um, almost insulting and shaming to men. And so we've, the edge has moved past Absolutely. it. Yeah, God is the center in my life, in my mission for God. And I told my wife before we got married that I would always choose God over her, always. Mm. And and I also told her, like, here's my mission. Here's where I'm going. And if you don't want to be part of it, we shouldn't get married. And um, and that that's just if it's a if it's a if it's a good mission, right? If it's a if it's an honorable thing, if it's godly. Like, so let me give you an example, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh I was trying to explain this concept and a guy didn't understand it at all. I, said, I was talking about how women are attracted to men with resources. Um, it's just obvious. It's stupid that we even have to argue this, but he was like, Oh yeah, well, what about, I knew this one, she gave, gave me this historic example and I have to go look it up. But this woman, she supported this, um, this man, he was broke almost their entire marriage, but he was an artist and she was his biggest advocate. Right. And I said, dude, that is not working against my point. That's, that's establishing it. Mm -hmm. My point would be that, um, that a, uh, that she sees his mission to create art, like his vision of, of beauty and whatever. She's captivated by it and she's willing to support that guy through all sorts of like poverty and stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the best things a man can bring to a relationship is just a real clear sense of what he's doing with his life and where he's going. And that's what women want to be part of. When you put the woman at the center, 
she is the mission then, right? And she's not, she doesn't get to participate in the mission. And that that weakens the relationship and puts a burden on a woman that's not fair. Mm-hmm. And that's why I like a lot of kind of beta male orbiter types, whatever you want to call them, nice guys, white knights, whatever uh, red pill terminology. Uh, they actually wear women out because they, you know, it's like they, they want to be the, the it's, you find those guys in the sexual relationship, they want to be the object of desire. That's backwards. The woman's the object of desire, right? There's just a neediness to them where they're always um, trying to please the woman. That's why when a guy stops trying to please a woman, he ends up pleasing her. Mm-hmm. She's like, just do some, make a choice, go somewhere, show leadership. And I think, I think guys like Eldridge um, didn't quite understand what was happening to our boys and how they were being conditioned to want to please women in every area of their life. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, when they hear that, that, you know, uh, kill the dragon, win the girl, all that sort of stuff, um, that it can, uh, it can take a really devastating path, right? Not that saving a woman saving a damsel in distress, not that there isn't value there or whatever, but it, it can just uh, reaffirm their sort of femme-centric way at, at defining their value. Hello, everyone. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Pastor Michael Foster. I just wanted to say thanks to each of you who've taken the time to leave a starred review on Apple Podcasts. My review count keeps going up, And it's so rewarding to see that you guys and girls I've heard are getting so much out of this podcast. I'm having a blast doing this. And there are some excellent episodes coming up I can't wait to finish. And some future guests I've connected with, I know you're going to love. I'm actually having to pace myself and failing. Also, thanks especially to those of you who've left a written review. I'd like to read the most recent one from an individual named Jay Westo. Quote, The Renaissance of Men podcast perfectly identifies what's happening in the manosphere right now. At this moment, millions of men all over the world are coming home to masculinity, and Will has his hand on the pulse of it all. With clarity, style, and eloquence, Will has put together something we should all admire, a voice to a growing brotherhood. Thank you, Will. I was and am so very moved and grateful to read these words, to know that my work is heard, understood, and appreciated. I know that thousands of men and women have listened along, nodded, smiled, laughed, and maybe even gotten choked up a bit at times in your headphones, kitchens, gyms, and cars. And to feel that love come back to me means more than I can express. You're how I know I'm doing a good job. Jay Westo, if you're out there and you hear this, send me an email at info at I've got a gift for you. And for everyone else, If you enjoy this podcast as much as Jay Westo did, please take a moment and click the five-star button or leave a written review. Or better yet, share this podcast with your brother or a friend. We all need to do this together because we all go up together. Coming up, I've recorded conversations with Dr. Robert Glover, author of the classic book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. I've also spoken with the amazing Instagram creator and podcaster, Blood and Rain, And just today, I recorded an episode with rising podcast star, Danny Miranda. Positive vibes all around. And my next Poetry for Men episode will be very special. I'm reading a selection from the most famous play of all time, William Shakespeare's Hamlet. You won't want to miss it. 
That's all for now. Thanks so much. And let's get back to the conversation with Pastor Michael Foster. As you say, you can't make the woman the center of your life and you can't determine your own value based on based on your woman. You you determine your value based on your your practices, your morals, your behavior, your connection to God, your mission, your discipline and, and all of these things and and the woman comes into your life as as a complement to you, not not the center of it. And and yeah, I think that gets kind of that gets kind of lost generationally. But that's the thing that we're all rediscovering now. Like I would say that I was the classic nice guy for many years. I didn't know any better. It's not like I had any had any inclination that that was what was wrong. I didn't even have the concept to understand what a nice guy was. I just knew that my behavior and my beliefs weren't aligning with my desires. And it was through my encounters with, uh, first with the Mankind Project, which sort of comes out of the, the mythopoetic world. And, and I think they, they, do, they do good work, but they have the limitations of the mythopoetic guys as well. So then I'm from mm-hmm. there that led me to continue on through this world of men, continuing listening and paying attention and pursuing my own image of masculinity. And then that finally led me to the Manosphere and led me to Richard Cooper's talk at the 21 Convention, uh, which was titled Be Better. And that was my introduction to my formal introduction to the Manosphere. And that was when I discovered that, oh, there's a lot here. And now I'm finally beginning to find the answers for why everything was not working in the way that I wanted to. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, a lot of men just haven't had the opportunity to be exposed to that. It's up to, it's up to us to begin to push these ideas further into the mainstream, like a wave so that the men who don't have those answers and can't find them anywhere in their culture, like if you wanted to even see a movie like Gladiator today or a movie like Braveheart, they don't exist. You know, if you're going to, I mean, the closest, the closest thing is, was Mad Max Fury Road, but that movie was not about Mad Max, was it? That movie was about Furiosa and Tom Hardy's just kind of there in the background saying five words, the whole movie, and then disappearing. And that's the, that's the closest thing that I can think of. So there's no place for men to learn these values. And of course, I think you'd agree that this is intentional to cut men off from these sources of masculine inspiration as much as possible in popular culture. I think 1917 is probably the most masculine movie I've seen come out in a while. Oh, I haven't seen, seen 1917. Oh, no, I man. haven't. It's amazing. Very is, good. Is it good? What did, what did you think of? I did see Dunkirk. I think that was pretty masculine as well. I did not see it. It's the only Chris. No, I've now there's two Christopher Nolan movies. I haven't seen Dunkirk and I haven't seen Tenet. Um, but uh, uh, my understanding is that they're very similar in themes. You know, okay. I only saw the beginning of Dunkirk. Okay. Um, and then I fell asleep because I have too many kids. <laughs> too much to do. <laughs> but uh, but 1917 is uh, really about brotherhood. Um, masculine responsibility and the way they bring women into it eventually in the story without giving anything away is good. It's good. And it's interesting to see that movie, you know, it kind of has a master and commander feel to it. If you haven't seen master, I think master and commander is the best masculine movie there's been made in the modern time. Shows, shows Shows that men can be big hulks, but they also can be really refined. It shows all these different types of men. Mm-hmm. And they show, and they show all these different types of failed masculinity as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it shows you like the masculine principle isn't um, quite the stereotype that people think it is, but it's a great movie if you haven't seen Master Commander. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I look at the Lord of the Rings movies that way too, as all these different images of masculinity and all of its different forms as, as this sort of holistic thing. 
Uh, that's definitely. Well, so I'm thinking about now we've talked about John Eldridge and Bronze Age mindset. And uh, I heard you mention Carl Sagan as well, which was part of my journey. The Demon Haunted World was the first book that I read that was like, oh, wow, I'm not as smart as I think I am. <laughs> you know, I suppose we should all read several of those books throughout our lifetime. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always at a loss for what books to send men to read that are about masculine Christianity. I send them to read Brett McKay's uh, Muscular Christianity. I send that's a pretty good book that it's more, it's nonfiction. So it's sort of like, how did the church get to this feminized state? And when was the last time historically that uh, that the church was actually masculine, which would have been the Muscular Christianity movement at the the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century? But are there any Christian writers that are writing well about masculinity and Christianity. I mean, I love a lot of what C.S. Lewis has to say, but he's not producing books anymore. Well, my book is being published by Canon Press oh. in the next couple of months. So finishing up the manuscript right now with my co-writer, uh, non-tenant. So that's called It's Good to Be a Man. So we'll publish that. I'd, I'd like to think it adds something to it. <clears throat> so that's one that if you're listening to this podcast months from now, please buy it by five and give them to your friends. But if well, you're looking for something right away, I will recommend the story of sex in scripture by William Mauser, M-O-U-S-E-R. So the story of sex in scripture, you can get the Kindle version real easily. It's a great book to read. It's a short book. You could read it in the city or two. You'll find it very helpful, very encouraging. You'll find it um, stimulating to your thought process. Uh, another one I would recommend is man or Men and Women in Christian Perspective by Werner Neuer. Uh, so W-E-R-N-E-R, -E and the Neuer is N-E-U-E-R. He was a German scholar. He's still alive, I think. He's quite old now, though. But that that's a good book. And I, I don't agree with all of it, but boy, it, it helps. It gets the, the juices stirring. Uh, those are probably the two books that a guy can pick up um, and read right away and finish it. You want something really challenging, Stephen B. Clark's Men and Women, or Man and Woman in in Christ. Man and Woman in Christ. That's a very expensive book. He's a Catholic scholar and anthropologist and probably the best written book on masculinity ever. The, the egalitarians and feminists act like it didn't exist because they 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 couldn't really refute it. It was so well-researched. Wow. Wow. Uh, so those would be three that you could start with, I think. So the third one was Man and Woman in Christ? Yeah, Stephen B. Clark. I have a copy. It's kind of hard to get a hold of now. I hear it's going back into printing, uh, but I, I spent $70 on my copy. So you can okay. get it cheaper than that somewhere. But it's a good book. But I, honestly, the Mauser book, Story of Sex and Scripture, Will, will scratch where most guys are itching and get you started. Okay. What is it? What is it about that book specifically? And also share, if you can share a bit about your book as well. Sure. Mauser's book is, it looks at the, the, the big storyline of scripture and shows how sexuality is absolutely essential to it. Mm. And um, I think it's short and I, I have a hard time getting guys to read long books and feel like it's uh, will actually get engage their mind and really help them start thinking about this in a um, big picture sort of way. And then they'll be able to apply the principle to their whole life. So our book is, I think the, the first words of our book is that is patriarchy is inevitable. <laughs> nice. Is the first. And what we do is um, we walk people through 
with the situation we're in, where masculinity is hated, and ex- explain how we got there spiritually, why Satan hates masculinity, why Satan hates men, mm. and how that was part of his attack from the very beginning. And then and, and then we explain the nature of the evil patriarchy versus a good patriarchy and show how they take advantage of masculine desires that are improperly ordered. So like, for example, uh, sex is good. A desire for sex is good. Mm-hmm. A, desire, a desire for brotherhood is good. A desire, uh, ambition is good. Uh, aggression is good. Uh, all these things when they're properly ordered. So sex towards the order of, uh, of marriage and having children, right? It's an engine of productivity. It used to be if you wanted to have sex with a woman, you had to marry her, mm-hmm. right? It was yeah. very hard to get sex any other way. And if you were going to get sex, there was risk attached to it, right? She should get pregnant or you'd have to sleep with a whore or whatever. Like it wasn't just something that you had to go to a bad part of the town, you know? Um, so God has designed, given us a sex drive that actually drives us towards productivity, Namely, in producing children, it says uh, a man and woman are joined and they become one flesh. Well, that's real. That refers to coitus, the sex act, but also the product of the sex act, which is a human being that's literally the mixture of two fleshes, mm-hmm. right? Two genes, two lines. Our children are uh, a picture of our marital love, right? Um, a confirmation of it. So we explain how those. Uh, those desires are good and a gift from God, but they've been uh, uh, reordered in a negative way or an unproductive way. And then we show how the gospel brings that brings us back to um, to God as God being our Father. Now, our sexual desires aren't for fornication, but for marriage. Our ambition isn't for selfish, ungodly reasons, but for godly reasons. Our desire for brotherhood's not hanging out with a bunch of pigs and rough, violent men, but hanging out with guys that are on a good mission. Our desire, you know, um, for aggression isn't a violence towards the innocent, but uh, towards those who would hurt the innocent and towards those that are unjust, right? And then we explain the basics of masculine virtues and end the book with explaining our mindset towards women, uh, what it should be. And we're trying to set it up for a trilogy of books. It's good to be a man. It's good to be a husband. And it's good to be a father. So that's what we're attempting to do. That sounds, that sounds fantastic. These are the kind of things that men need to read to, so that they, especially men that are questioning spirituality in a sense that you know, they look at the available options. They look at new age, the new age religion, which is, you know, no. And then there are, there, of course, Norse paganism is, is having a particular moment right now. And I, I want to get into that with you actually. Um, but then the, of course, that there's a, this wave of Christianity that's passing you know, over all of us right now in this incredible way. And, and there's this lack of resources for men to sort of understand, well, how can I, how can I make this fit into my life and my family and my identity as a man? And, you know, how does it apply to me being a husband in an authentic godly way? And, and, but also because they recognize that they want to be a father and they recognize Mm -hmm. what values am I going to pass along to my children, to my sons and my daughters, because, you know, you don't have to go very far to see what's become of women these days, you know, and you don't have to go very far to see what's become of men either. And so that we're recognizing as soon as our eyes are open, like this is not working. So how can I begin to uh, bring godly principles to my kids? But well, then first I've got to bring that into myself 
And, and what does that even, what does that look like? And where do I turn to find that information? Because there's so few sources. So I'm glad that you're, that you're putting these books out about it. Cause it's, it's so necessary. I mean, I, I, you do your work and I do my work and we all know men who are doing the work as well. And, mm-hmm. and that's the great blessing of this moment is to be able to, as they say, you know, preach the gospel, spread the word. Uh, but you know, the more books and resources that are available for men to engage with on their own time, you know, the better. Amen. So actually, since I touched on it very quickly, um, and I meant to ask about it earlier, what do you think about what's, I have my own theories about this, by the way, what do you think about what's happening with Norse paganism and, 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 and that moment as well? Cause I wanted to bring up Jack Donovan's the way of men, which undoubtedly you've read as well. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. and you know, Jack was on my podcast and he's a friend of mine and everything like that. So, you know, but I like I'm, Jack. Oh yeah. He's, he's a fantastic, fantastic guy. So I'm just curious what you thought of reading those books. You know, he, he does, you know, pretty openly state like he's not going to address in his new book, fire in the dark. He addresses masculine archetypes. Um, and he very explicitly says at the start of the book, like, I'm not going to apply this to Christianity. And so he just kind of leaves that out, but he does, he does make some positive hints later in the book, which I thought was nice, but not so much necessarily about him or his books, but about Norse paganism in general. What's your take on, on that particular, um, on that particular trend in masculinity, I guess you'd say. I think, um, all right, let's come at this a weird direction to keep this podcast interesting. So let's do it. I'll give you, all right. Aliens, little gray men with black eyes, they're just fairies for secular humanists. Like they're right. just, they're elves, they're sprites, they're little people, they're leprechauns. It's more, uh, it's the more the same. I like we all we see all these things play out through history, like these it, it, horror movies. Is there's a, a horror movie? There's always people until they started subverting the the normal horror narrative. Uh, basically, people are doing something wrong, and this other comes and judges them. This unstoppable other. Mm. You know, Michael Myers, whatever. So these, these morally, these immoral people are killed by these others. And usually there's like some sort of more pure or faithful person that's able to stop this unstoppable force of judgment, of, of, of uh, wrath. I think people know that the world is infused with the spiritual, that there's spirits out there, that there's angels and demons, and they have to find some way to deal with it, whether it's through the aliens or it's through sprites or it's through demons, right? I think people know that there's a God that they have to answer to, and there's a bad conscience that has to be dealt with, and sometimes this works its way out through a horror movie and this this other thing that's going to destroy them. I think that we all know that there is a God uh, that we have to stand before. And sometimes it works its way out in North Norse mythology. I think these are human. These are things that are built into us, downloaded onto us from birth, a knowledge that we all have and it's vague. And sometimes we apply it to the wrong things um, or we imagine it. And I think Norse mythology, the returning to it is uh, demonstrates men need to have a spiritual connection to gods, right? Um, And they won't come to the true God um, of the Bible because it, sadly means they can't be men when they can't be masculine because the church is overwhelmingly effeminate. Mm-hmm. And so I think I see this just playing out that way, you know? 
yeah, my, my theory is similar. My theory is that uh, men who are exploring masculinity today are looking for, they're looking for a couple things that the current version of the church doesn't provide them. They want a connection to their bodies and they want a connection to the land. And my experience of Christianity is that it's very, very disembodied. The, they're good with the whole, the whole sky father thing. Christianity is pretty good at that. But when it comes to, well, I want to be a masculine man and exercise and be in shape. And I want to go out in the woods and, and have a, have a meaningful encounter with this incredible earth. And they don't find either of those reflected in Christianity and they actually feel it as a lack within themselves. And so if they can't find it in Christianity, if their body is calling them to this sense of integration with themselves, where are they going to go to find it? Well, they go to, they go to paganism because that's, if paganism offers them anything, it offers a connection to the land and a connection to your sense of, of power. And, and the way that I usually phrase it is to say, if, you're, if your religion doesn't provide a way for men to grow wise and skillful in the, skillful in the acquisition and use of personal power, you've failed men. And that's how I see a lot of Christianity is, is right now is it's not providing a pathway in, you know, in, in the, the wider world for men to become wise and skillful in the acquisition and use of personal power. And it's a huge problem. And I, I, I was talking to um, Jonathan West who runs the being husband podcast. And, uh, and he was talking about the Gnostic heresy and I was trying to figure out, you know, okay, so there was some crime committed against Christianity at some point to remove the masculine essence and the connection to the earth. What was that? What was that crime? It has to be in full view because Christianity has been around for a couple thousand years. And so, you know, we were talking about it and uh, he was talking about the Gnostic heresy. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting that maybe that's where that came from. This sort of sense like, oh, we have to prioritize spirit over matter and matter is fallen and sinful and you have to escape. And that's sort of what the Gnostics were all about. It's like, oh, I, I wanted to run that. I, I'm not theologically educated in the way that you are. So I wanted to run that idea by you. Like, what do you think that the crime committed against masculinity in the Christian church was the Gnostic heresy? Maybe not the Gnostics themselves, maybe not that sect, but that particular idea used as a, as a weapon against masculinity and Christianity. I, I mean, I wrote about this, actually just finished a chapter up on this for our book. Awesome. Um, and uh, so we say there's two major errors you see today in the church. First one is man as a trapped spirit. So that's Gnosticism right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they stick with Christianity, men will typically accept that man is a spirit trapped in a prison of flesh. On this view, our human nature is divorced from our biological nature. We are androgynous spirits and the flesh, far from reflecting our hearts, is an encumbrance to them. Mm-hmm. Right. So this goes way back to like Plato and and all that. Um, and so then the second error is man is a biological machine. Uh, the alternate and opposite error, which many men prefer to choose, is that everything about human nature is simply biological. This error reduces who we are to our physical appetites and impulses. It takes the standard um, atheistic evolutionary view that man is a meat machine programmed by natural selection to have certain desires. It therefore only follows that there is nothing wrong with embracing these natural inclinations. Whereas the previous error denies the goodness of the body, defines redemption as the spirit's freedom from it, this error denies reality of spirit and sees no need for the body's redemption. We are nothing but a body, and what we call consciousness is merely an emergent property of a complex brain. Moreover, our bodies are not corrupt. They are just a product of evolution and uh, imperfect process. Freedom, then, is surrendering to your nature if it feels good, if it serves your desires, do it. 
they're both they're both uh, errors that are opposite and that you see now. But a man no can only a guy will only buy into Gnosticism. The man is a trapped spirit if it gets some laid, or if it gets some money, or gets some somewhere. And there's a certain point where that man's like, no, no, my impulses, right, are 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 real, and I can't deny them. But the church only sees those impulses in their wicked manifestations, right? Where like a, a virile sexual drive is treated as like bad, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I would say if it's aimed at the wrong thing, yeah, like uh, I'm not impressed by pickup artists. They don't impress me at all. Right. You know, like um, I don't, I don't covet their life. You know, I, I don't hate them. I want them to know Jesus. And some of the guys I met down at the 21 uh, conference are great guys that, I mean, in a sense, like I enjoyed my time with them. Right. And, um, but I, I do think those things are destructive, but I think having a good sex drive is great. You should have one, you know, like, uh, but, um, those guys eventually are like, no, I don't want to repress this anymore. And so what are they, where are they going to go? Right. Well, they're going to go to the people that lean more on towards the man as a biological machine mm-hmm. where the, the, there's a basic denial of our spirit. Right. Our spirit's really just our mind or our mind's just really the brain and brain's part of our body. Um, and so they'll, they'll end up by listen, listening to guys that lean heavily into evolutionary bio, uh, psychology only to explain man. And um, who can blame them? Who would want you know, who wants to deny their body? Like, this is like real. I feel it. I touch it. It's part of who I am, you know, like, uh, and so uh, in Christianity, there's a sort of self-hatred um, that they nurture in men and men get sick of hating themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not even an issue of pride. It's an issue of like, is it good to be a man? Right. That's why we call our ministry. It's good to be a man. I mean, that's the whole point. It strikes at the heart of it. We're not even talking about being a good man. We're just talking about by God's design, God made man on the sixth day. And he says, he, it is good. Mm-hmm. It's good to be what God made you. And so I think, I think there, the Gnosticism is something that pops up throughout Christianity. We defeated it momentarily back in really the second century, third century. It popped back up again. And uh, I think uh, probably Romanticism is the newest error that the church has been facing. That's about 400 years ago. But you'll find guys like Cotton Mather in the colonies um, when they're founding America, you know, this long before even you know, it's the 1600s, I guess, uh, complaining about the lack of men in church. It's mm-hmm. not a new thing. Right. It's, it's been going on for a while. You put a couple things together just brilliantly that, uh, and also I just want to say, I really like your writing because I've, I've read some Christian books or tried to, and there's a way that many Christian books are written just like many much Christian music is sung, which lacks a certain groundedness and presence. You know, I try to read Christian books and the language feels very airy fairy and divorced from any sort of identified as angst. Like you don't necessarily always have to have angst, but a little bit of angst is sort of like, okay, brings it down to the body. So I like have some edge to you, man. Have some edge. That's right. Don't, don't take all. Yeah. You want it to sting a little bit. You want to feel like you're reading something, not that you're, you know, challenged. Yes. This nice breeze is blowing over you, which is how a lot of Christian stuff comes across. So that's really nice. So you put a couple great ideas together of, you know, this 
pure spirit and and non-spirit and how those two are fundamentally the same thing. And, and that's the war the church is facing. And I think that we can all look at our experiences of the church from within or without and say, oh yeah, okay, I've seen the overemphasis on spirit. And oh yeah, I guess from outside, I've also seen this atheistic, materialistic, reductionistic kind of way of looking at things. And you know what? Like the real test is how happy are these people? They're miserable. They're miserable. And, you know, somehow we, the, the what was, what is it from, uh, I think it's from Job, right? It's like, uh, the ear tests word as the tongue tastes food. I think is, I'm, I may have come close with that. This idea is like, are Sounds you, good. yeah. Are you able to discern this, you know, from the individual and are you just able to discern it from their lives? And, and I think as a lot of people look at these things and they judge materialism and they judge Christianity for these two very, uh, uh, these very deep errors, once you highlight that for people, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. That's what was wrong the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Christian men should have a joyful swagger, right? That's what we should have. should have a hop in our step. But often we don't because we've, we're just being shamed. And I, I'm fine with shame, but I'm shame is like pain, right? When you step on a nail, your body says, don't do that. When you punch an innocent person in their face or lie and feel shame. That's your soul saying, don't do that. Mm-hmm. But when I just walk normally, I shouldn't feel pain. That that's the indication that something's wrong. And so when you're being made to feel shame for being a man, that is a, that is wrong. Right. And so we're being shamed for being masculine. And that is a terrible betrayal of God's design and purpose. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, the, the term in the vernacular is, toxic shame, right? This idea that, yeah. that there's something fundamentally broken about you. And I, I guess that's, I mean, if, if that's Robert Glover, right? That's his, that's his basic idea. No more Mr. Nice Guy. He highlights, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I thought that was helpful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's something fundamentally wrong with you. Well, you know, I, I, I'm curious how that then, how that fits with this notion of original sin, because I, 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 I identify that as sort of this source of shame that we all kind of carry that's part of nature of being human. It doesn't necessarily mean anything about us. It's not like we're broken as humans, but there is some component of that in in original sin. And we're going to, I guess we're getting theological here, but I'm curious how you put these two together because again, I'm very new to Christianity. Have I been able to assemble it with a whole lot of things that I've experienced elsewhere in my life where it fits quite well as I've been exploring it. But this particular issue is one that I've kind of run into. It's like, how do these you know, wouldn't original sin say we should all be feeling toxic shame or is there some other, some other nuance to it? Well, uh, first off, it's good to feel shame for real sins. Mm -hmm. Um, Second off. So with original sin in a Protestant understanding, which I think is what the Bible teaches is that we all fell in Adam. So the best way to explain this is that um, I, when, so let's say you're, you're born in 19, I don't know, what, 90. Uh, you're born at war with Iraq. You personally have no knowledge of Iraq and you've done nothing, but your president who represents you declared war on Iraq. And therefore, you he's your federal represent, uh, representation. He re- represents you. And so when our representatives do something, we participate in it. Adam, as mankind's federal representation, representative, excuse me, he sinned and rebelled against God. And so we all, as a people, are in rebellion because Adam rebelled. Just like if a president declares war on someone, then the nation's at war with that person, whether they like it or not, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, but also part of that is sin entered into the world, and now we all have a, a, a fallen nature, a sin nature, um, where we are inclined towards sin. And a lot of Christians will reject this, and that's another longer conversation. But they're called Arminians, will tend, not all of them, but some of them will tend to de- uh, deny um, that there is such thing as a sin, uh, a sin nature. Uh, it's almost like you have an age of accountability where you don't commit any sins. And then at that point, you're held, where you're not held accountable for your sins, but when you reach a certain age, you're magically accountable for them. Mm. And, um, but no, I think kids from a very young age are self centered. But that's bad. If you act like that as an adult, that's bad. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's our job to love our kids and train them, right? And so, uh, so I want my kids to feel ashamed for their sin, but I want them also just to repent um, and know God's forgiveness, like know my forgiveness, know that I love them, that I'm for them. And then God makes this way of us being made right with them. So we don't have to stay in shame. Um, shame is not a way to um, manipulate us per se. Um, but a way to guide us back towards what's right. Just like your body stepping a nail, that's bad. Don't do that. Committing sins aren't just arbitrarily wrong. They're also bad, mm-hmm. right? So when you lie, you're breaking God's laws, Ten Commandments. Don't bear false witness. Um, that's wrong, but it also uh, breaks down relationships, mm-hmm. right? So like its consequences are bad. And so sometimes we act like God just made up a bunch of rules that are arbitrary and they have nothing to do with anything but they're actually bad for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so calling you to live a righteous life is actually calling you to have a happy life. That's right. It's the good life. It's the good, true and beautiful. And, uh, and we feel shame because we, uh, we're, uh, we live lives of lies. We use li- uh, live lives of ugliness. Right. And, and God's calling us out from that. He's saying, I'll wash you. I'll make you whole. And that sort of shame's good. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, what I usually explain to people is that the reason why you don't do bad things is not just because God said so. You don't do them because they're corrosive to your soul. It's like, like this is the argument that I make to people who say, well, you know, um, it's okay. It's okay to hate uh, you can't be racist towards white people. The people who say that it's like, you can't be racist towards well, That's a thing out there. And I've had actually people say it to me. It's like, Oh, it's not possible. It's like, okay, well, how about you try that on? Why don't you try hating someone for the color of their skin and see what it does to you? Like, I'm not going to make some sort of critical theory, theor- theoretical, philosophical argument. Like just try hating someone for the color of their skin and see what it turns you into. It's bad for you. It's corrosive to your soul. And the reason that the reason why the Ten Commandments exist, you know, isn't because God was like, well, now I say these things are wrong. It's like, no, you can do them. You'll just find out that it's terrible for you. It's, I mean, junk food is a really terrible metaphor for it, but it's like you're doing something that's actually self destructive. You follow these rules and you will see that you preserve yourself and you preserve your integrity, you preserve your, your soul integrity. And in addition to the, the, the benefits of the social relationship and, and maintaining the social fabric and all these things are, all these things are tied. And I, I find that when I say that to people, they're surprised by that perspective. It's like, Hey, see what it does to you. 
break these break God's rules, but break any break any rules. Like let's just set aside this notion of authority, like legal authority from a government or whatever. Let's set out a bunch of moral rules and say you shouldn't do, you know, some authority figure says you shouldn't do those things. Okay, let's just strip away that authority figure. Now do them and see what they do to you and see if there isn't a reason for the people saying you can't do that. And I think we're, you mentioned sex earlier. I think we're seeing that. There's a, there, were, there was a reason why sexuality was con- confined to, to marriage, because when you loose that, for, it's not exclusively a demon, obviously, but when you loose that power out on the ru- world without any constraints, you see it destroy people. It destroys their it destroys their integrity. It destroys their self-respect. It destroys relationships. It destroys families. It destroys children. Pornography is a manifestation of it as well. And like, and, and, and so there you go. Congratulations. Like, why did we do all of those things? For exactly this reason. You, you, you broke the dam and now it's shattered. And now we're flooded. It's like, oh, great. Now we have to, now we have to bucket out this, you know, swamp we're all living in. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the most, um, unloving things well so in scripture it says that um if it is for discipline that you endure god deals with you as uh god deals with you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline right so if a father loves his son he disciplines Mm -hmm. but if you are without discipline of which we all become partakers and you are illegitimate children not sons you're a bastard not sons Mm -hmm. furthermore we all had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as seem best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant, but painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, a good father disciplines his kid, not just for fun, but because we love him. And we want them to do well in life. And a son that's not disciplined is like a bastard. Mm-hmm. Is like someone that doesn't carry God's name. Someone that's not loved by their father. Someone that doesn't carry his legacy. And a lot of us have are the way that the lack of our father's love has manifested itself is that we weren't disciplined. Mm-hmm. We weren't discipled. And discipline is both formative and restorative, right? It's to correct kids when they go off the path, but it's formative also to show them the path that they should walk on. Um, so like you're being, uh, disciplined as you're taught how to do karate the right way, right? Like that's a discipline you're learning. And, but I think when God, when people are obstinate, God does just let them go their way. Right. And so there's a saying in church discipline, Paul says, this guy, this is in the book of Corinthians. This guy won't listen to him. He's actually sleeping with either his stepmother is mother. We're not sure which one exactly. Mm. We all hope for a stepmother. Um, But he talks about delivering him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, you know what? You want to pursue that life? Fine. We're kicking out of the church. Go pursue it. Mm. See what happens. Well, it's funny that that's in first Corinthians and second Corinthians. It appears that the church did finally kick this guy out and now they won't let him back in. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Let him back in. He's repented. He said he's wrong. He's seen the errors of his ways, right? Don't break, don't destroy him, like bring him back. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny in first Corinthians, they won't discipline this guy. They're actually proud that they're, they embrace a guy that's, that's committing sin like this. 
And Paul rebukes him, says he needs to be disciplined. And then the second Corinthians is like, no, no, you guys have done enough. And it's, it's hilarious because those are the two uh, ditches we always see in churches, churches that like won't say anything about sexuality, like fornication and pornography and sleeping around or whatever. Or you see churches that like that's all they ever talk about. And they're very legalistic and won't forgive people and won't allow people back in. But love is is proper discipline. And sometimes the only way to show people love is just to let them taste the fruit of their sins. Mm-hmm. Right. Go have at it, buddy. You know, and I always tell my kids, like, look, you don't know how much I love you now. You just don't know. Yeah. A day's going to come, son, and I'm going to be gone, right? Either because I'm dead or because you moved out of my house. And then who is going to be there to stop you from doing something stupid? You. You're going to be there. Mm-hmm. There's a day coming where you are the person that leads yourself. And now all I am is bumpers. All I am is here to guide you. And to help you build those habits. But there's a day where it's it's on you, man. And right now, like, I'll stop you from doing destructive things. But a day, the day's coming where it's all on you. Will you will you say no to yourself? You know, that's what we always teach our kids. Like, we don't want to be the one to have to say no to you. We want you to be the one to learn to say no to yourself. No, that's not good. I want to do the right thing, right? Yeah, and where does this, where does this come from? It comes down from God into the Father, and the Father gives it to the Son. That's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty basic, you know, and somehow, somehow we lost sight of that. Well, and there's also, there's also people who are overly disciplined. So what's that about? Oh, I think, um, I think a lot of people, a lot of men want to, if you, all errors of masculinity, in my opinion, come down to a man's relationship with his father. I'm not saying that the mother doesn't play a part. She absolutely does. But um, when you don't have a good father, he's absent, he's distant, he's a bad dad, whatever. It tends to manifest itself in one of two ways in your adult life. And they're really uh, the same side or two sides of the same coin. On one side, it's this sort of macho, macho guy, right? And macho guys are really fragile, right? It's all like, those are the guys that are like ready to fight fight you at a moment, you know, like you, 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 uh, insult their honor so easily. That's fragile, right? Like a real, a guy doesn't jump at, at fighting all the time. He, he knows how to laugh, laugh it off or whatever. But these guys, like they overcompensate because they, they want to feel manly. And then on the other side, the guys that are effeminate never really connected with their father and they're trying to find their way in the world. They end up identifying much more with their mother and taking on her attributes. As you meet with these men later in life, you realize what they needed most was a dad that said, I love you Mm -hmm. as you are. I am glad you're my son. I want you to grow in these areas, but I love you. I think so many men need to have the love of a father. I think the guy that's working his butt off, workaholic, over over discipline he just wants to be valued he wants to be worth something and he, he's not working from a place of rest and acceptance mm-hmm. and the other guy is trying to find a, a personality that someone will accept i think so when i look at effemacy and i look at machoism i still think these guys these guys need to know their dad loves them and then they need to be corrected by that dad hey stop being a punk stop being a blowhard 
you know, stop being a feminine, stop, stop being a sissy, right? You need, you need a dad that like my one son, Athanasius, when he was younger, he got his, he got really offended easy anytime someone teased him. So, you know what I did? I did what every man should do. I teased him more till I broke him of it. Mm. I'm like, you can't be this way, son. You can't be so proud that you can't let people tease you. One, this is going to make them not be want to be around you. Two, they're just going to, they're going to tease you all the more. You have to learn to laugh at yourself to, to, to people to know that you're a guy that isn't self-serious, a guy that, you know, takes the mission, takes life serious, but doesn't take himself so serious that he can't laugh at his mistakes. Mm-hmm. That, that, that is prepping that boy um, for working with other men because guys that can't laugh at themselves will brutalize you in, in the world of men. And I, so if you don't have that dad that did that though, then you're in a lot of trouble. And that's where a lot of us are. We grew up without good dads. You know, not that our dads meant us harm, but maybe they they they're like another broken link themselves, and they didn't have the father they needed, and and this deficiency has been passed on down, and we're all learning. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, men teasing each other is how men bond. You know, that's what they do. Absolutely, men insult each other and don't mean it. Women compliment each other and don't mean it. That's right. That's right. I mean, so that's how it plays out, generally speaking. Yeah, exactly. Like if like if I'm teasing you then we're friends, you know, and I wouldn't tease you if I didn't, if I didn't feel cool with you, you know what I mean? If I tease someone I'm not cool with and I'm prepared for a fight with them, I suppose, but. Right. I agree. Amen. Well, so as you're getting ready to do this church plant, you know, in, in, uh, I think you called it East river church, like what sort of, what sort of things do you plan bringing to your congregation and community out there as a pastor? Have you, have you been, you've been the pastor of a church before? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I've been an associate pastor, and I, I planted a church previously, um, like twelve years ago. So, my God. Um, so we are we we had our first normal service on December fourth, and so we're a couple months into this, and it's good. Um, so, what we do at our church is we go through the Bible uh, verse by verse, and whatever the text is that's before us is what we preach. And uh, try to apply it. You know, I, I read the text over and over again, look for the original intent of the author and explain it and then apply it to the life of my church. You know, so uh, we so our church isn't a church for men as in it's just a church for men, mm-hmm. but it's a church that men can come to and they feel welcome. Mm-hmm. I don't want to overreact. I don't want to have the correction to become the next problem. You know what I mean? And one way we do it is just teaching the whole Bible and being unashamed of it. You know, I'm not ashamed. I won't apologize for any of it. I, I won't apologize for God commanding Israel to destroy the Philistines. I'm not sorry. I'm not ashamed. He did it. You're not holy. He is. That's right. I trust him. You know, I'm not going to apologize for First Timothy 2 verse 12, where it says women can't have authority over men. Yeah, I'm not making any excuses for it. Whatever it says, I'm not apologizing for scripture talking about hell, right? I'm going to teach whatever is in front of me. If it's the grace of God, you're getting the grace of God that week. If it's if, if it's not the grace of God and something else, that's what you're getting this week. So one way we do it is just by declaring the whole counsel of God. And we work away. So I'm working my way through the book of Philippians right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, but what we emphasize is uh, I would say boringly normal 
historical Christianity. So if you know what has been taught in the church for the last 2,000 years, then there's nothing unique about our church. But seeing how modern Christianity has really departed from historical Christianity, some of the things you'd hear would kind of be shocking, I think. You know, um, patriarchy, um, the exclusivity of Christ, that he's the only way to heaven, um, uh, all this cultural Marxism nonsense. We, we rip that into little pieces all the time. Um, that's actually in scripture called the sin of partiality, teaching or favor, favoritism more or less, favoring people because of their skin color. Mm. And uh, and that's what we do by prior, saying that if you're white, you're evil. If you're not white, you're just depressed. You're like, nope, that's not that's not the categories that scripture uses. Right. <laughs> you know, that's we're not gonna. So we we focus on that sort of stuff, um, and uh, just try to tie a lot of history church history and world history into my sermon so people can understand the context that the that it was being taught in so they understand like i had to explain uh the roman trial process with paul getting ready to face down nero um which paul ends up facing nero and, and eventually being beheaded under his reign um but what's interesting about it is paul used his Roman citizenship as a way to keep from being killed and also being able to preach the gospel to Roman officials. So one principle right there is that you have this Christian using his worldly citizenship, his Roman citizenship, to uh, move forward the gospel. And I've been telling Christians, like, look, there's nothing in Scripture that tells you not to get involved in, in civil government. And to use your citizenship. Matter of fact, Paul's example says we as Americans should use our citizenship for the purpose of God. Mm-hmm. You know, so just teaching people scripture, you know. Um, and uh, we, we have people that have no clue what patriarchy is or feminism. Well, I, I, we have feminists coming to our church. We have people in process, man. And uh, so it's, it's wonderful. I love it. I love being around people that are growing in their faith and people that want to take it out to their businesses and get involved in the city council. And uh, I also love that we're we're willing to go after uh, people that most folks ignore. Again, kind of poor people and um, and uh, poor white people. You know, dirty white trash, meth smoking. People don't understand. Like everyone thinks, like all the sexual depravity is happening in the cities and they clearly didn't grow up in the country. I'm like, I don't know, man, people sleep around a lot. It's pretty rough. You know, um, I remember this one guy I worked with when I was an electrician, he told me that, that him and all his buddies had slept with each other's wives when they were boyfriend and girlfriend back in high school. There's there's a lot of work to be done out there. The opioid uh, crisis is a real thing here in the Midwest. Uh, what crack did to black people in the 80s is what opioids doing to urban blacks in the 80s. Crack just like decimated them. Opioids doing that to poor whites right now. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to reach out to those people, reach out to everybody um, that we can that's right there in the county. And um, it's just, I love it. I love being around the, what God's doing there. I'd rather do that every week than speak at conferences or anything. That's mm-hmm. what matters to me. Well, that's what Jesus did. Jesus went and and preached to the the people who needed healing. And then he people says that like multiple me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so so glad to be saved. I'm I'm so thankful that the Lord plucked me out of the hell that I was in and uh put me on the firm rock. I didn't deserve it and I want to show love to the people 
I want to sh- sh- uh, deliver the same gospel to them that someone was willing to bring to me all those years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and they deserve it. And it takes someone with a spirit of, of courage and love and, and the armor of God in a way to venture into some of these places and to say, you know, I'm going to preach the gospel in places where I might not be welcome, where I might be hated or where, you know, I might be encountering real darkness that lives in people, maybe not even consciously, but that's where it's needed most of all. And that's why, you know, as, as crazy as it sounds that my particular introduction was at a ministry group in Burning Man, where else should Christians be? You know, where the people that are in some ways, some of the most broken, but are, have the most resources to hide it is really, I think, a lot of what's going on out there. Oh, man, it's I, I love that, that that happened with you. We used to go street preach and we'd always go into the most dangerous neighborhoods we could find. I look back on it as a parent now and think, oh, my goodness, what were my parents doing? But um, we went to Cabrini Green and the Robert Townsend homes up in Chicago. And we're like the only white people that went in there were police officers. Mm-hmm. but. We saw amazing fruit. People opened up their hearts to us and realized like that we're just, we had our Bible. They listen and, you know, um, God's word's powerful. I mean, he's doing cool things. Things are happening. You know, things are happening in a big way right now. You know, at a federal level, it's pretty discouraging. Mm -hmm. But men are coming alive and there are local movements. I was on a conference call before I came on here working on um, a conference called County Before Country. Um, and I, I, I see a lot of people waking up and taking responsibility for their local community. And I, I love that. I see Christian men at the forefront of it. Mm. It gives me, um, it makes me happy and it is a huge encouragement to me. Mm. So is, where do you see things going in the near and perhaps the, the medium term, who knows in the long term, because everything seems so on edge and you're right. Everything is quite discouraging from a federal level, which is why I don't usually pay attention to it. You know, I pay attention to what's going on in my immediate environment and my circle and the people who are important to me. And it's like, you know what, those people, quote unquote, people are going to do what they're going, what they're going to do. And I, I did my best what I could to try and stop it. And they decided like, Nope, we're doing this. And it's like, all right, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to do, I'm going to build as many men are saying right now. So from your position as a pastor, I mean, it sounds like there's, there's seeds of hope being, uh, being cultivated. Hope is maybe, you know, its own word, its own thing, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't really know. Um, I can just say that we've, we've seen dark times like this before in history. Um, the, the disarray in Europe right before the reformation period in late 1400s going into the 1500s, one marriage was in a bad shape. Um, men, there was kind of a MGTOW movement back then. Hmm. It was real interesting. A lot of men didn't want to get married. Um, they didn't trust women. They thought they, they, uh, it's, it's real interesting. There's a book called when fathers ruled by Stephen Osment that, uh, that explains what was going on and how, how that happened. But it was a, it was a socially unstable time because of all the fallout with the Holy Roman empire and the Roman Catholic church and states kind of starting to separate from the church. And it was very, um, fragmented and scary and the economy was all over the place and it was new uh, technology like the printing press that was um, disrupting things and it was bad for a while and there's some really terrible things that happened during that period and but a lot of good things came out on the other side so I try not to go all dystopian um, 
because there's always factors and variables you're not aware of. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I have more of your mindset, control the controllables, focus on what I can do. And I try not to pay. I, I look at national news about once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I focus on my local news. Um, I mean, so I, I know it's going on nationally sometimes because Twitter fo- people I follow on Twitter, sure. you know, but, but I don't go to any news site except maybe like once once a week. And that I used to go there all the time, several times a day, but it's because it doesn't matter. Like I can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. I think people are realizing like the only way we can do anything about federal level is that we get organized back at home. And I know that's not a guarantee of victory or whatever, but people are like, Hey, you know what? I can get on city council. I can become a county commissioner. And you'll find out that like a sheriff in your community has, uh, is incredibly powerful. If, if the government says we want you to do something and the sheriff just says, eh, I'm not going to do that. It's not easy to fix that. And that's why you go to that, that, that one, uh, sheriff, Sheriff Joe from out New Mexico or Arizona, wherever Phoenix, it was. Where I am. Phoenix, sheriff okay. Joe Arpaio. Yeah. 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 That guy caused chaos for them because yeah. he wouldn't listen to him. And it's because they have real power. And, and when people start to realize like there is actual real local power, um, that, you know, if, if all your friends are on the health department and they come to your restaurant and they're like, yeah, you're fine. Right. You know what I mean? Like, what are they going to do? So I think people are waking up to that. And uh, I think the church is a major part of that because we, we come into the county and we train the men how to be men and the women how to be women. And we help them raise up their kids in part. And then we say, now go take the truth of the gospel and live it out as businessmen and as members of the society and as part of the civil magistrate. Now go do it. So I think what I'm trying to encourage churches to do is to get deeply involved in training their people. to. So there's a distinction institutionally between church and state. Mm-hmm. There is zero distinction between church and religion. The idea that I can't bring my religion into the government is stupid. Like you'll hear people say, you don't legislate morality. Wrong. That's the only thing you legislate is morality. Mm-hmm. What are we? What am I legislating? Opinion? Consensus? Like, how, what do you mean? Like, the reason we have laws is to protect people and, and to keep on justice. And um, so what we need is Christians that love their neighbors, even if they're not Christians, right? They still love them that are part of the common good. And um, so I just think uh, that's where I see a lot of good stuff happening. And I do think we're going to see more of that. People start waking up to it. And that's promising. I don't, the, the future of America is not good. Mm. And, uh, and I hope the Lord has mercy on us, but it's bad, man. It's bad. It's a huge tyrannical nanny state Mm -hmm. being led by a dim witted old man and a terrible ungodly woman. Mm -hmm. And they're probably just puppets to get to it. It's not, it's not an encouraging time. And, but we'll see what happens. I think, uh, the best we can do is hunker down where we're at and get to know your neighbors, bring them cookies, let them know if they ever need eggs and sugar, you got their back. Get to know their kids, have dinner with them, go to your city council members, worship every Sunday with other Christians, you know, build each other up, help each other fix your houses and cars and build community again. Get to know people. Mm-hmm. I think that's a promising way forward. 
oh yeah, all politics is ultimately local, right? But now it's hyper-local down to your neighborhood, even though it may not even frame it in a political way. Well, I know that you've got eight kids to attend to and, 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 uh, husbandly and fatherly responsibilities, but I just had just one more question, if you don't mind. So there are a lot of men right now that are very curious about Christianity. They don't really know where to start. Um, they, maybe they can't find a church or maybe they don't know, um, what books to read or who to listen to or who to pay attention to. Like if someone's like, okay, you know what, I'm ready to begin seriously investigating this. And, and I want to be as you say, challenged and I want to be spoken to, like, I really like C.S. Lewis and N.T. Wright because those were the first two men to, that I felt spoke to me about Christianity like I was an adult. So I really like some of the, some of their books as well. But even though I know that's at the end of the story. So, but for men who are looking for that, it's like, you know what? I want someone to talk to me about Christianity the way Bab talks to me when I read it. Where do men go for something like that? Any, any resources that you could recommend would be wonderful. Well, first, Read the Bible. Seriously. <laughs> it's pretty simple. I mean, I mean, uh, actually read it. Yeah. Um, I, I always have people tell me they read the Bible cover to cover. And it takes me about two questions to demonstrate that if they did, they didn't remember much. Mm-hmm. Um, actually read the Bible and see what it says for yourself. Then I would, I would advise um, picking up a good commentary to go along with it. So Matthew Henry's uh, concise commentary on the Bible will help you. So you read the chapter and then you go look at Matthew Henry's comments on it. I don't agree with everything he says, but it'll help you understand what's going on. Um, That would be a good place to go. Um, Another book, if you're trying to understand the Old Testament, I would recommend is the um, Old Testament Explained and Applied. Uh, What's the name of that author? Anyway, look it up. Old Testament Explained and Applied. That's a good Old Testament commentary. Actually get into the Bible. Mm-hmm. Read that. Now, if you're looking at it more apologetically and trying to understand like how it, why it's true and how it relates to other religions or evolution or whatever it is you're struggling with, um, one movie you could rent is Collision. And that is a, uh, a series of debates between Doug Wilson and Christopher Hitchens. I think that might be a good book to help, or a movie to help you think through some of the why we know Christianity is true. And again, like you said, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity would mm-hmm. be a place to go. But I really think reading the Bible with a good commentary. I mean, I, I have a long list of books I used to recommend to people all the time. But... Um, Seeing it stick is is God's word, man. It's amazing. It's not like any other book. Um, Basic Christianity by J.R.W. Stott is not not bad. That's okay. Um, But honestly, read the Bible, pick up Matthew Henry's commentary, and start there. And go to a church. And um, don't be don't be so proud. Don't act like you know everything. You can go to a church that's imperfect. Um, give, give yourself some time. And uh, there's a lot of bad Christians out there. So what? It doesn't mean that doesn't mean there's not real Christians and Bible's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like if you're actually serious about your spiritual journey, like we'll put some effort into it. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry. One more question that I just thought of. Since you recommend reading the Bible, I usually I usually tell people like, oh, where do I start in the Bible? I say, well, so I, I like to start with the New Testament. That's where I started because I found that was the quickest mm-hmm. to get into for what I wanted to know. And then the Old Testament is always going to be there waiting. 
Is there a translation? I know this is a great question. Is there a translation that you prefer? Okay. Um, If you're a new Bible reader, um, so I I use the New American Standard Bible because I like the way it translates from the Greek and the Hebrew. But if uh, you could probably use the ESV is the English Standard Version is a pretty easy version to read. Uh, the 1985 version of the NIV ver- uh, Bible. The, um, but I, I prefer the New American Standard Bible. And it can be a little wooden in its translation at times because uh, Greek is a higher language than English. Mm-hmm. You know, Greek's just way more rich. And, uh, and it makes it difficult. Like in Greek, you have all different sorts of loves and different sorts of times where a lot of times we don't have that that rich vocabulary that the Greeks had. Um, so it can be a little stilted, but I think that's a good place to go. And nowadays you can go to like BibleGateway.com mm. and it they have like all these different translations on there. And you can just compare them. But I think pick one, New King James is actually a pretty good translation. The King James is using more of that Shakespearean sort of English, Mm -hmm. but a new King James has been um, adapted where it doesn't have the same archaic language in it. Um, But ESV, NKJV, uh, NASAB. So NASB, there we go. Awesome. Well, thank you. That's, 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 I read the NIV. I don't particularly care for the language. It was a gift that was given to me with NIV study Bible. So that's been a really great way. That's what I recommend to people is I didn't know about the Matthew Henry commentary. So I'll definitely look into that. But with a study Bible, with all the footnotes, it really helped me kind of take apart the text and get inside the text because the Bible Mm -hmm. wasn't written by it wasn't written by authors in the way that we read a book today. It wasn't a, a work of art that was designed to draw you in. You know, there are some chapters or some bits that are like that. Yeah, it's different. It's it's 40 books or 40 authors, 66 books in multiple genres. So like Deuteronomy is a legal document, whereas like Ecclesiastes and Job is what you call wisdom literature. And so the problem is we bring a Western mindset to it. Like even a gospel is a particular genre and written. Like a lot of the gospel doesn't all happen in chronological order. That's not how you organize it. Mm -hmm. Or or take like... uh, uh, the book of Samuel, which is divided into first and second Samuel. Uh, some of the events of the, at the end of second Samuel happened earlier, you know, cause, cause David's dead. And now they're talking about David being alive again. Mm. Um, and it's because they, they structured these books to tell a story and they use methods that we don't read like chiasms is, uh, a chiasm is, goes kind of beginning, middle beginning. Uh, so, one version of that would be mm. uh, in my, in my Shyamalan sixth sense, mm-hmm. right? It begins where it ends where it began. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so there's not like the, the revel it's the um, realization of what happened at the beginning of the movie. So it's like the structure of scripture is very structured, but we are all idiots. Like Americans are idiots. We're poorly educated. We don't know anything. The Hebrew poetry is amazing. Like, so if you look at the book of uh, Genesis, uh, there's something called Toledoth, and that happens is these are the generations of. So there's the book of Genesis is actually ordered around. It's an outline. It has a prologue that starts in Genesis 1 and ends in Genesis, I think, uh, what, 2, 7. Um, and then it's, these are the generations of Adam. 
and then, or man. And then these are the generations of Noah, yada, yada, yada. They build and it's, it's organized in such a way and it has these cycles that repeat over and over again. Basically, a older brother has a problem with the younger brother, Cain with Abel, mm-hmm. right? Then Ham with Shem and all the ones with Noah's. And then you have Ishmael and Isaac, and then you have Esau and Jacob. There's these patterns that repeat over and over, and there's this beautiful structure. And that's what I want. The cool thing about the Bible is every time you read it, you get more out of it. Mm-hmm. Like that, you start to see the structure. And having a, a commentary like Matthew Henry's, which is free online, by the way, you just but you having a hard copy is nice too. Uh, allows you to start connecting the dots because people treat the Bible like it's a bunch of disconnected fortune cookie fortunes, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's written with a theme with a beginning and an end and, and it all makes sense. And once you see that, you understand that the hippy dippy Jesus is my best friend, buddy cop. Jesus is like a complete lie. Mm -hmm. The Jesus is a man that the gospel is amazing and it blows up to pieces your modern ideas of what Christianity is supposed to be. And that's pretty satisfying. I can absolutely uh, testify to that as when I actually did set about to start reading the Bible cover to cover, starting with Genesis and working my way through, it was before my baptism or even had any thought of conversion. I thought I was going to be a writer. And so I was like, well, if I'm going to be a writer of fiction novels, I should probably read the most important book in Western and in in the world, perhaps, but definitely in the West. And so I started reading it cover to cover and I got all the way to, um, I did get into Samuel actually, I got up uh, and and uh, that was that was you know when David first appears on the scene is when things start to come to life literarily in a way. It's like oh wow, this is actually written in a way that me and my my current you know Western idiot state can recognize as something that's that's parallel to what I've experienced before. And then uh, and then I stopped because of circumstances at the time. But I was able to from that point a connect it to what I knew of the gospel at point b and said reading the Bible is actually an evolutionary experience. There is something mad, like magic's not even the word. There's something deeply important and spiritual going on in this book and the process of reading and encountering it. And that was when I developed a whole new respect for the Bible. It's not just something that you pluck verses out of to kind of justify your argument one way or another. It's actually a text that needs to be deeply engaged with and deeply felt and considered. And as you say, it blows apart just to even consider it that way, blows apart all the, the preconceived notions. And we started this conversation talking about Jordan um, Jordan Peterson. And I think that is one of the things that he did very well in his, um, in his, in his talks and in his, uh, his videos on YouTube and is to really take the Bible in the way that you just described it. And these stories that are all so familiar and make them comprehensible archetypally symbolically, because that was his approach to a Western audience and give them the chance to encounter the Bible completely separately from anything out there that wouldn't be able to reflect it in a thoughtful way. Like, I don't know, I don't know if Matthew Henry's still alive, but he's probably not going to be out there giving talks on YouTube any to, well, maybe he is, I don't know, but uh, that sort of thing. He's is very, like, dead. He's very <laughs> 400 dead. 400 years ago. Oh. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, no, that's great. That's, that's what a good teacher does. Makes, he makes something understandable. So it, it provokes your curiosity and you want to dive deeper yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I've certainly done that for me. So thank you very much. I've really enjoyed speaking with you about all these, uh, these subjects. And I feel like we could talk for much longer. It's a good time. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. So where can people go to learn more about you and what you do? 
Well, I haven't been canceled from Twitter yet. So this is Foster on Twitter. This is Foster on Gab. Um, I quite like Gab. I recommend it. Hmm. And then It's Good to Be a Man is our podcast. It's on iTunes, Spotify, all of them. And also it's good to be a man.com. We have lots of articles on there that you can read. And your book is going to be titled. It's good to be a man. Yep. And that'll come out in a couple months. We will be turning in the manuscript here and it depends how much we fight over the editing, but um, it should, it should be ready here in just a couple months. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, congratulations. Congratulations to that. I know that writing a book is a big accomplishment. It's taking years off my life. (laughs) Especially as being a husband and a father as well. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you for all the wisdom and, and insight that you've shared. All right. God bless. Thank you. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.